Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for tuning in. What a beautiful country we live in. It's easy to talk about things when they're wrong, but it is a blessed country, and I'm reminded of it as listeners contact me and you're also very special and so very wonderful. And our guests, amazing. And I've got beautiful guests along today. I've got Wendy Fowler, who, like me, has become enraged by the sex education and transgenderism in our schools and how we're robbing our children of their innocence. We're going to discuss that with Wendy Fowler. And then we have a wonderful couple along, Neva and Yotam, they're going to be telling us about their regenerative farming and permaculture, how that works, what it is, what they do about it, and how we can learn more about it. It's going to be a great show. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can send me a text 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. 
To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. The following interview contains topics that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you would like to contact us in regards to any of our content, please email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me inbox at Reality Check Radio. For absolutely forever, uh, whether you're a boy or a girl, uh, was determined when you were born. You know, you had the bits. Uh, a moment ago, it was decided that you're not born a boy or a girl. Uh, it's all a big social construct. And it's what you identify as. It's like something inside you, apart from the obvious, that makes you a boy or a girl or something else. You might think this is fanciful. Well, if you do, you clearly haven't got children in the education system. Because trust me, kids coming out of primary school as of this moment think that they identify as a boy or they identify as a girl or they're non-identified, they're fluid. This is this was what uh, my daughter was required to do when she did her test heading off to high school. And I said, that's insane. And she said, of course it is. But I said, did the rest of the class think it was insane? She said, no. They've been taught nothing else. The parents are totally unaware. Well, one person that's going to explain something of this to us is the wonderful, I've watched her on Rumble, Wendy Fowler. Good morning, Wendy. Morning, Rodney. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing very well in one sense because of seeing you and what you're doing. In another sense, my wife is sick of me. She's sick of me because I can't shut up about transgenderism and how it is, to my mind, the total destruction of everything we hold near and dear, Western civilization, families, love life, romance, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a mother, what it is to be a father, all of that is being destroyed for our young people. And parents don't know that it is happening and sort of shrug because it sounds so loony, but it's that old saying, give me the child till they're seven or whatever it is that the Jesuits had and we will make them. And they have done that to a generation of kids in our school system. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right, Rodney. And, you know, for me, um, just looking at what's um, being rolled out for every school for next year um, should make us all sit up and uh, take take serious notice. Um, because what what you've just said is 100% true, 100% true. We are, we are facing uh, the loss of our generation. Um, of our children and and therefore their children because once you start a, a trend which is this is what it is it is a trend it is as you said a thing that is conceived in the mind it's constructed 
and perceived in the heart. Uh, I feel this way. Um, we know that that's and it, and it's sadly it's pushed by what uh, many have now identified as social contagion, which makes it, you know the social media uh, groups that our young ones are on. Uh, they push it. You, you seem to get quite noticed if if you choose to go down that pathway. Um, it's cool. It's cool, right? It is cool. Yeah, that's it's, what it's it, like. When we were kids, we had beetle haircuts, and yeah. the school was trying to make you cut your hair over your ears, and yeah. we'd try and sneak it down. And all through the modern age, there's been rebellious teenagers and rebellious children. Well, what's cool now is to identify as something else. And just being an old-fashioned homosexual is no longer cool. You've got to sort of swap sexes. It's tell me how you became aware of this. I'll tell you what what worked me up uh, quite with it with a jolt is um I I've been a teacher all my life. I've been a I've been head teacher twice, uh, both in Africa and here. And so I and I really when the first the health um curriculum came in as a separate curriculum in 20 um 2001, I think it was, I was responsible as associate principal at at the school I was at in the South Island to bring that into the whole you know the whole school and consult with parents and so I know that but then I went to, to teach in a Christian school we didn't teach any of that stuff um, that we had our own program was private so we were actually doing things quite differently and then I went into lecturing um, at um, Ladle College just putting that out there. And uh, for 15 years, and, you know, when you lecture, you become quite siloed. Um, with just um, my uh, my background, as of last year, my job was terminated as I was mandated out. And good I, for you. Uh, good yeah, for good you for me. For ha- good for you <laughs> Thank for you, having Rodney. that courage. That Thank must you. have been very hard. It was tough. It was tough. Um, I bet but you, you know, don't regret it now. I don't, not a thing, not a thing. You know, I know at that time I had peace about it and I don't regret a thing at all because I see what's going on out there now. I see people, you know, mm. died suddenly. Um, those things we know are happening. I see the the hurt that people and the injuries that people have um, gone through. My Heading goodness. back just to, so um, I then had more time on my hands. I started to do homeschooling, teach homeschoolers. Um, I'm an artist. Uh, I do commissioned work sometimes. And um decided I would teach the arts, you know, the arts to or visual arts to homeschoolers. And then I started to dig into the homeschooling background and wondered why they were actually not at schools and started to realize, wait a minute, these are reasons why they're not in schools. And some of it was looking at the curriculum. However, just just to segue slightly, in in about um, March this year, so I'd been out of um, the mainstream teaching for about a year by then, I, I looked at what was going on worldwide in Australia, in South Africa. Obviously, I've got family there. I worry about them. In the US, which is our, sadly, our Western leader, in, um, in Europe in particular. And I realized that what they had, they, they had an agenda had been set out from about 2010 by the World Health Organization, which was Utterly shocking in, in realizing that uh, as I looked at it, I realized that they were they were talking about pushing a health curriculum onto every Western nation. And so they have. So Europe teaches it. They have been for many years. 
some of the things they're teaching then I've, I've just got to speak about that because I, I wept for about I wept for hours and sorry if I get emotional here but it is um when I saw what they were teaching to preschoolers things like and I'm just going to mention them if that's okay yes please um for instance um mutual mas- masturbation in primary school posters up showing you that these little ones can go behind the cupboard uh I kid you not it, it was it sounds like some other planet well it but it isn't they they use words like um you do not always have to comply we're talking about zero to four years old this is what we're talking about then they go on to um ages four to six and they talk about enjoyment and pleasure being one of the main things that they should be looking at and again self-stimulation in six to nine year olds they were they talked about um Differences of, you know, showing the entire differences of the body inside and out between men and women. Surprised they called them men and women because they, the, the trans agenda is definitely being pushed there too. But there seems to be, it seems to be more vicious in the sense that sexuality is being pushed on our young ones when they have no idea even who they are. And so here we have transgenderism being pushed on our young ones, but uh, which again makes them, they are vulnerable. They are. They are uh, any teacher who learns what how to teach or what what it, what a child how a child develops soon realizes that they're not ready even to cross a road on their own when they're seven eight nine and yet we want them to decide that they're a different gender and that to decide that um, not being that gender or or anybody who identifies as not being that gender is a stereotype which means I'm a stereotype you're a stereotype. Uh, Rodney and you know my most families that would go to schools here would be a stereotype and then they talk about inclusion but actually what they're implying is bigotry on their behalf because they don't really um, see us as having an equal say into these things and that is a worry just if I could just go one more um, thing in the um, in the WHO program which by the way has just been implemented in South Africa in October uh, so that uh, I followed that. They had a referendum. They tried to push back. It was called the Bella Bill. They um, parents stood up. I heard homeschoolers. I heard one little homeschooler saying, standing up and and giving her own um, representation about why she wanted to be homeschooled. They don't. They want to control even the homeschooling um, curriculum in all areas, including health. And you know the thing is, we belong to the WHO. We mustn't think that we are far behind. We are still we are struggling with horrible things right now, yes, and we need to stand strong regarding that. But if we look at the trends worldwide, we are only a few, maybe a year behind regarding these things. We some countries pushed back, um, and that was in July this year against the WHO uh, program, which said this is what you've got to teach your children that between nine and twelve they need to learn about their first sexual experience. No, nine no, ages, nine, nine years, to twelve. Old. I kid you not, Rodney. And they you know, should be that any teacher doing that should be in jail. They should be. It's it's child abuse. It's pornography. It's um, grooming. It's grooming. Absolutely grooming. So but, those but, are. Yeah. But how, how is it possible that a teacher in a classroom is talking to a young girl um, about their first sexual experience? How I'm, is I'm that get, possible? 
Yeah, I'll give you an example. I, I actually watched a training video and um, on which was done in, in the, the Netherlands. Uh, two things that happened on there, a very short video, but it was telling. And this is what this is what made me weep in with uh, with rage, with um, with you know, realizing maybe I'd been asleep at the wheel. Little boy of five, a teacher in Dutch, and I'm, I can understand Dutch, I speak Afrikaans fluently. The teacher in Dutch speaks to the little boy and asks him when he self-stimulates. Does he do it here? Does he do it? This is a this is a teaching video for teachers. So she asks him, where do you do this? When do you touch yourself? Is it is it okay to do it, you know, here or there? Or no, no, you can do it in your bedroom. That's fine. You keep doing it. And this is just a gen this sound, I know children touch themselves. We all we, we've all had kids. It's part of them understanding themselves. But this is grooming once again. A little girl, nine years old, on the same video, uh, asked by another Dutch teacher, dressed very professionally, and um, simply saying, nine years old, um, have you ever, do you know that you have different parts in your private areas, let's say your genitalia? And um, there are, there's a, you know, where there's your vagina, and then there's the, um, where you, you know, urinate, and and then there's a clitoris. And have you ever touched that? And and how does that feel? And the little girl goes, no. And she says, well, uh, when you do that, and if you do this and this happens. So what I'm saying here is, this it sounds utterly bizarre and unbelievable, but it's there. I went onto the WHO site. Um, I've actually been, um, I've actually heard a senator in um, Senator Rennick, I believe it is. In the in Australia, speaking about the same curriculum, he showed it. Uh, it's the same one I show. I copied and pasted every time I when I present on a PowerPoint, I present the stuff. I had to double check that it wasn't year nine to twelve, but it was age nine to twelve, Rodney, when their first sexual experience was discussed. That to me, there is. Um, it's an interesting emotion to watch with you. It is that you cry yeah because this is the loss of the most precious thing in the world it is which is the innocence of children it is and being a child and these this program is robbing our children of their childhood it is. I'm not, I have no violent instinct in me. However, my reaction to it is to get violent. Yeah, I get it. And it's an interesting thing about a man and a woman because I actually want to attack people that are doing this to our children, just yeah, like right. I desire justice of yes. a paedophile. Exactly. I know there's a difference, yeah, but it's degree. Yeah, and it is degree. I look at my 11-year-old girl, any person trying this on me, I think I would get physical. I've never yeah. been physical in my life. Yeah. I get but that. that's my girl you're talking about. Yeah, I get that. And you know, Rodney, that that is what we 
what we need other parents to be like, you know, because if we to save these children from the horror of what they're going through now, the stuff I just talked about, yeah, not here yet, but what do we have here? You know, we have um, this constructive thing about you can be any gender, that the school doesn't have to inform parents when when children speak about being a different gender at school, that um, boys are now enabled, if they identify as girls here in our country, to go into the change rooms of biological girls. That, again, I, I have a son, and I said to him when I read the WHO stuff, before I read our stuff, I said to him, when you have kids, son, please let me homeschool them. I will homeschool them the whole way because I I, I was that shocked and that taken aback um, after I collected myself. But, you know, looking at back to what's going on here, you know, we, we go, oh, yeah, that's 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 far-reaching. It's, it's not ever happening here. It's happening. It's happening and it's grooming. And as you said, the grooming starts in different formats and in different ways. And, you know, when we look at some of the things regarding pedophilia, which you just spoke about, even that, even that right now, there was a document during the year and um, which was okayed by the UN, not written by them, but okayed by them, which uh, spoke about decriminalizing pedophilia. Now, when I say that to people, they, they, they just go, that's impossible. Well, I've got, I've got websites. I've got, I've got the programs where I found that. I read the document through from beginning to end. And they talk about because children may want to consent. This is where they come from. And that brings me to a word which is being used in our New Zealand uh, curriculum right now, which is the word consent. It's brought in casually in year one and two, casually. Consent is a legal term. It means two people need to agree to a thing and they need to have informed consent. Yet it's coming in as children should be able to consent to. Well, they can't. They can't. Well, they can't. They can't. And it's even talking about consent, it's dumbing it down as if consent to um, playing with someone or consent to touching someone else's hand or, um, you know, that type of thing. It's being, it's being brought in in a surreptitious way, uh, which was pointed out to me. I was just talking about it, and this wonderful Māori um, grandmother said, that is, that is crazy stuff. They're just, it's coming in. You know, in a in a way that just enables children to speak about the word consent as if it's the norm, and that's again is a, it's subtle, but it's a form of grooming because that you know people one of the things that comes that comes out with um, just sorry I've got a whole bunch of things here in our um, yeah in the in our gender um, or sexual identity things. You know, all of all of those areas there in, in what we're dealing with here, uh, they talk about consent regarding um, anybody, um, you know, making comments about you or playing with you or whatever. And it comes through in every year group. And I had to I actually spoke to a lawyer about the word consent. And she was she just opened my eyes and said, it's impossible, as you said, for children to consent, no matter what it is. And it's and Consent has has always had a sexual overtone. It's always had, yes. had tones regarding the age of consent for for um, sexual um, intercourse, or or it's to do with um, marriage, age of consent for marriage. You know that that has and and various countries have different things. 
But here it is being brought in slowly but surely. And the idea of changing your gender, as you said, here in New Zealand, is becoming um, as, you know, as easy as picking a new set of clothes every day. Um, oh, and you can change back and forth. Exactly. And, you know, that's in law now, Rodney. That's in law now. Yes. Yeah. Um, my experience was my then 11-year-old daughter. I was awake to what was happening in America because yeah. I follow Matt Walsh and I watched his fabulous documentary, What is mm. a Woman? Good man. And as it happens, my 11-year-old is very uh, mature and unlike my other two, and she and I rolled around the floor watching this, thinking this is what how mad is America. But when it came up in the school for her health curriculum, they said, oh, would you like to see? I said, yes, please. And they sent it to me, and I read it glibly, to be honest. And I thought, oh, it looks okay. Yeah. What I didn't realize back then was they had brackets and it said gender identity. And I didn't realize that's code. So my daughter explained the whole thing was about gender identity. Mm. Next thing, she comes home from school, she's 11, and says, you better sit down, Dad. Dad. Uh-oh. I said, what happened? She said, we had all these trans and lesbos turn up and talk to us for two hours. And it was that group, activist group, Inside Out. Yeah. No that parental is. consent. No. Turned up to 11-year-old children as trans teenagers and gay teenagers to explain this is who we are and don't criticise us and you could be like us and, uh, and if you say anything, you're a transphobe. Yeah, that's right. Two hours, no parental consent. Shocking. Then you discover that they go off to the local library and inside out have been there. And the kids, my nine-year-old came home with a bookmark with all these lesbian books being advertised on the bookmark. That's that right. The public library had given her. She's nine. Yeah. Now, this has made me religious. I've become yeah. a Christian this year. Yeah, join the club. <laughs> made me more made me more of a believer, and knowing that I could stand with with the help of the Lord, because I don't. Yeah, because this is evil. It is evil, Rodney. When I look at it like COVID or climate change, I think, oh, well, there's a big argument there and people argue this and they say these numbers and it's all confusing to people. And you find yourself continuing having to come up with, no, that's not right, no, that's not right. And it's, they've confused everything and called it the science. Mm. But forever, for every animal, there's never been a confusion over a man and a woman or a male and a female. Yeah. Never. Never. All of a sudden, and it feels like to me a couple of years, but maybe five or six, I think. Maybe you say it goes back to the, the UN was talking about it in 2010. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was, but not here. Our children know nothing different. Yeah, that's what worries me, Rodney. Yeah. They, they, you know, what, what they're experiencing, they think is the norm. They think it's absolutely the norm that that gender dysphoria is the norm because anybody is encouraged to engage in that um, construct where we know. And, and young girls, like I think of, someone told me about this, maybe in another chat, it's like anorexia. Yes. A young girl looks in the mirror and sees a fat person, mm. whereas they're as skinny as a rake starving to death. And they can be a little unhappy and decide, oh, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. Yes. And, of course, it's interesting. It's It's made me learn a lot because I appreciate women a lot more. Because I never realized until I went through this that I could never know what it's like to be a woman. Never. No. It's impossible. And yet exactly. I've gone my, it's gone through my whole life thinking, you know, I know what it's like to be well, I've got no clue. Like, <laughs> in a funny way, you've got no clue what it's like to be someone else. But you can't. You can't know what it is to be a man. No, exactly. And and you know, that's that's what makes us unique. And just putting on a you know, a man's clothing or whatever is not gonna change the fact that I will always be a biological woman. And changing even going through puberty blockers, which I must say are horrendous, but they're encouraged by people like Inside Out. For youngsters who are in this state of maybe anorexia, as you mentioned, and unhappy, or children, some children who um, are on the spectrum, you know, yes. um, they also get targeted because there are things in their lives which they struggle with. And let's be honest, puberty isn't fun. No one goes, yay, you know, uh, I've got cramps as a girl, or yay, you know, I have to do this every month, or whatever it is, and, and boys have other things going on. And which embarrass them at times, but no one goes. Parents don't go in and and say, "Oh my goodness, just because you're experiencing that, I'm going to affirm you as something else." Because maybe this can change how you. It'll never change. Puberty. We learn later, a few years later, how wonderful it is because we become the people we are. And you know, Bob McCoskey is a. I'm a great fan of his, um, and I've I've read his stuff. I use his stuff, and he says that almost almost. I think 98% that is of children who go through this, oh, I'm not sure, you know, I wish I was a boy. Didn't we all? I mean, as a girl, I, yes. I wished I could run as fast as, as a boy. I ran fast enough as a youngster, but I wanted to run faster as that boy. Because, and so I wished I was a boy for a second. It doesn't mean I change it or, or somebody comes in and, and abuses that and indoctrinates me and, and, and says that this is a possibility. It's never a possibility. Because never. never, nothing changes. And, you know, I've even gone as far as watching uh, uh, transition operations because I wanted to know what I was getting into. And, you know, nothing actually functions as it should anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, many of those are trying detransitioning. I mean, Chloe Cole in the U.S., you would have you'd be aware yes. of her. Many others are going, please save our children. This is a 
This is an experiment on our children. Uh, let's speak up against it. And that is at Stonewall Institute in the UK, with something like when the figures were looked at, 80% of the people, young people, that they felt were the wrong sex, 80% of them were either homosexual or autistic. Yes, precisely. I've read that as well. Yes. And and the gay community, many of them are up in arms about this. They are. Because they they are are saying, they're saying this transgenderism doesn't admit homosexuality, which is a funny thing. Yes, so exactly. So they're being excluded. The whole argument about being homosexual, we've been told, is that you're born that way and there's nothing that can be done about it. But now we have this view that, no, you just choose whether you're a boy or a girl. And we have this ridiculous thing whereby lesbians have to admit men who identify as a woman. That's right. Circle. And That's so right. lesbians are hot to try. Yeah. I, I, I became reasonable friends with Georgina Byer, mm. who was our first transgender MP. Mm. And she never suggested she was anything other than a man who wanted to be a woman. She didn't say she was a woman. Mm-hmm. She was a trans estate. Yeah. I met a lot of, when I say a lot, two or three transvestites through my work as an MP, one of whom has emailed me, and she's 81 or so, horrified by what is happening. Mm-hmm. Because she said to me, she wished she was a woman, but she wasn't. And she wanted to be a woman all her life and presented as a woman. And she said, to some extent, was accepted as a woman for what she said she is most grateful. Mm-hmm. But she said, I never was a woman. Mm-hmm. the pity. Yeah. And she said, these activists came into the movement, she suggested, 20-odd years ago. Mm. And she said, all alarm bells should be sounding. They should. That's a transvestite saying that. Yeah, yeah I know, Rodney. And they see, you know, if they, because they are people who recognize that children are unable to consent to change, unable to consent to take puberty blockers, Unable to consent to um, do certain things that think that that groups like family planning and 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 inside out and rainbow youth are are pushing at schools and as you said without parental consultation. Now we know that that children are, are not in the position to make those decisions. They you know one day they'll they'll feel like um, Superman, the next day they might feel like Superwoman. But they remain who they are, and this this is just part of growing up and part of having some fantasy fun things out there because they've watched a movie on it or whatever the case. It doesn't change the fact that they remain who they are always. 
and it doesn't change the utter harm that that these activists, as you call them rightly, are bringing in, forcing their agenda on our children with supposed consent, uh, consultation, not consent, consultation with parents, which we know from groups like Resist Gender Education has not gone well at all. I've I've spoken with um, quite a few people that I know on a group called, uh, you've interviewed Penny uh, Penny Marie, Marie. Uh, from Let Kids Be Kids, amazing group. I just want to thank them for their support for everything that I do. I just, it blows me away. But um, these these groups have, uh, have clearly pointed out that that our our children are not in the space where they can make these decisions. They are not in the they're not in the space where they should have these things pushed on them. And I know that um, within resist gender education, there are lesbians. I've I've realised that as well. And so they, as adults, understand because we, when we are kids, there is no understanding of what we're getting None. into. None. Nothing. Nothing. And the thank adult goodness. is the one. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness, yes. yes I get goodness. the sense, apart from the utter depravity and evilness of it, yeah. I got the sense that maybe they're targeting prepubescent children. Yes. In order to transition them ahead of puberty, should they feel the need. And then they say extraordinary things like, Oh, if you're not sure, you can just delay puberty. Which I'm no doctor. <laughs> no. But what an absurd proposition. And then exactly. you're you're 10, you can take these pills, which is I understand the pills you give pedophiles to cast chemically castrate. It's them. exactly right. Yeah. And you can have a wee pause. And think about it. And then if you decide to go through with puberty, you can and become male or female. Or you could have surgery and become a male. This, what on earth is going on? And I promise if there are nanas and granddads listening, chances are this is happening in your grandchildren's school. It is. It is. Because and Inside Out will – they don't know. Inside Out will push, will push this um, agenda – and interestingly enough, I just want to share regarding the puberty blockers, yes, um, puberty blockers cause permanent sterility. It's not, you can never recover, can never recover from puberty blockers. Everything halts. The size of whatever you have at the time, prepubescent, stays the size you are. It will never change. So you cannot reverse it. In fact, I was speaking to um, a sitting politician in July, um, good man, believer in, in as well. But I just wanted to say he's a, he's a dad, and I spoke to him as a dad. I felt uh, when when this whole epiphany happened to me in, in April, I, I just said I need, I need some guidance in my spirit regarding who I should speak to, and his name just came to me, and I'm so grateful for that. And I said I spoke to him about these, uh, pu you know, puberty blockers, and how the Ministry of Health, our Ministry of Health, had said that they were basically safe and effective. Um, in 2017, this is when they stated that they were safe and effective. Um, and he stopped me. He said, "Actually, they're just reviewing this right now, and they're taking out those words, safe and effective. Those weren't the exact words, but they was they meant exactly yes. that. So they they are now realizing. In fact, there's a whole 
um, a lot of documentation that is coming to the fore, which people have dug out and and asked them to reveal that you know they don't want people to know um, certain things in in policy making, and this this whole thing is being reviewed um, around puberty blockers. So he corrected me on that, but he said you are perfectly right. In 2017 and up to now, the Ministry of Health considered puberty blockers to be perfectly safe. And you know if they, if we just stop for a minute, besides our our nanas tearing their hair out of their heads and mums going, stop, and dads wanting to kill people because, and, and I don't mean that in a real sense, but because of the 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 anger it's, that it built. It's so yeah. primal. It's it's so prim- primal. It is primal. These are kids, you know. I mean, I don't have little kids anymore, but I've been a teacher all my life, and these are the the lives that are precious. These are lives that are precious. There's one, there's one person, um, he's a philosopher, um, and his name is, I'm just going to read this out to you, just his name's Neil Postman, and he says, you know, children are the living messages we send to a time we will not see. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And you know, that is what a responsibility. What a responsibility we have. And if we sit back, we we we're gonna lose it. We're gonna lose our generation. And so for me, we Whatever we do now is going to tell in the future. It's going to tell down the line. It's going to tell next year. It's going to tell the year after because next year in every school, this curriculum becomes permanent unless something is done about it. So 2024, it's up to now it's been, it's been scattered around schools because the process of, of approving a program or of bringing a program into schools is that certain schools trial it out. And so that's why we've had these, these things coming out of the woodwork and inside out coming to your school or going to someone else's school and and talking about these things um but if we you know if we sit back and and do nothing about it um we're in trouble and i feel as teachers teachers are not as informed I've, uh, there's some teachers who want to leave because they don't want to teach this stuff yet what do they do they're between a rock and a hard place there's some really good testimony from um a document that i found um, on bob mccoskey's site um, i'm a secondary science teacher i was forced into a role last year to teach health um and as a scientist she says i can't teach this gender stuff it's not scientific i can't teach it and she felt as if she was coerced into it she was so-called trained and told she had to do it there is it's it is a madness waiting to explode if we don't um speak out you know and if we find sorry if we find um the remains of an ancient human thousands yeah. and thousands of years old we can sort of tell their height and their brain capacity yeah and we can tell whether they're a man or a woman always <laughs> every cell of your body by your gametes exactly every cell of your body screams yeah. man exactly screams woman and xx xy and we understand or accept that for some reason some people can be same sex attracted. Well, okay. But you can't change your sex. Can't, no. Unless can't. unless you put in an online form and you have your birth certificate. <laughs> Tell Which me. our government is allowing, interestingly yes. enough. For thirty five dollars a shot, by the way. I thought of I thought of doing it. <laughs> um to show you how people how stupid it was but i couldn't 
go through with the lie. Mm. Good on you. And that I could put a certificate in and that on the 16th of December 1956, a little girl was born. That is insane. Yeah, it's insane. I had an experience where a big six foot, three, four, 260 pound woman with a beard walked out of the girls' changing room at the beach. As my then eight-year-old was walking in. Oh, wow. And her eyes were as big as saucers, right? Yeah, which is quite normal, isn't it? That's normal to have big eyes when you see a thing like that. A man, a woman with a beard, right? Yeah. And her older sister said, oh, it's, that's a trans. My children now won't go to public toilets yeah. or changing rooms. Oh. And I wrote to our local mayor because he was newly elected and he was all on about inclusion. And I said, did that include allowing men, biological men who say they're women, enter the public changing sheds at the swimming pool, at the event center, where my little girls go. And the sod wrote back saying, oh, your point is noted. What sort of leadership have we got for our little girls? No protection. So a paedophile can declare themselves a woman and sit in the girls' changing sheet and women's changing sheet all day. True, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happened. Happens. It's happening everywhere, Rodney. It's happening everywhere in our and country. No one at the swimming pool or the gym can do anything about it mm-hmm. because of the Human Rights Act. This That's person right. might have a birth certificate that says they're a woman. That's right. Even though biologically they're totally a man. Now, I've got to say, I'm got to accept that I'm an old man. (laughs) But if I saw a fellow following my girls into a changing shed, I'm pretty certain I would attack them. Yeah. Well, as as a parent, that that, that would be you protecting your child. Mm, It wouldn't be thinking. No. No. And and he can protest all the rights in the world. 
I would probably grab my girls and run because I'm a bit of a yeah. sock. But <laughs> um, this is, where do you think it's, obviously we've got the UN, but where is it coming from? What is, I know, I know about John Money, Kiwi, pervert, yep. Yep. right? Dysfunctional human being, mm. loved Let, by the yeah. left. Yeah. For, fraudulent science. That's totally right. dis, totally disgusting. Mm -hmm. He was the one in the 60s and 70s that pushed that gender is a construct. Yeah, absolutely. And did research that was perversion. If anyone wants to look it up, look up John Money. Yeah. You yeah. even find pictures of him with Helen Clark. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Alfred Kinsey. Another fraudulent science, mm. uh, total fake, and they have become the so-called experts. Mm. They were deviants to me. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. So we have those two, mm. right? But I don't know how you get from the two <laughs> to our local mayor, mm. our local school, our yep. local library thinking where does this come from you know rodney in my uh, in in looking at what i've looked at um it's we know it's a left a left agenda we know it's actually a marxist agenda and marxism aims at destroying the family unit absolutely now if that this is one way of destroying the family unit. It destroys in the sense of that child will never reproduce. They will become sterile if they go into puberty blockers. So they will never reproduce. They will never have a functioning family if they have chosen to transition. So they will, and they will never be part of a um, male female children relationship, which is um, considered, which has been considered the family, the family unit, because we know that our civilization is built on family values in this country, any Western country, in, in not only Western countries, but we know that it's built on family values, which consists of a, a mum and a dad and children. And whether people believe in whether they have a faith or they don't have a faith, um this is still the this is still the way um that those that push it understand it and i, I am without a doubt I, I think they understand for sure that this is what they're doing they're reconstructing society and when you do that society becomes weak in exactly. in one way and another yeah and but so that doesn't it doesn't even need the child to transition I know. They just need the young girl or the young boy to believe that it's a, a, an identity that you choose. That's right. To destroy That's right. Them. Which we know is not is is a it's a construct. It's a social construct, as you said earlier. And if you if you think that you choose your identity, I can't see how you can have a healthy, fulfilling life. No. No. As a male. Or female, no. going through courtship, 
the trials and tribulations, marriage, children. No, you can't. If you think, oh, I just choose to be this, that's robbed from you. Yes, it is taken. So and that is, yeah. Even family. though, even though I'm a girl, even though as I write on every form I fill out, I identify as a girl, my womanhood and my manhood is robbed by ticking that box. Yeah. Yeah. And the marriage is robbed and it the is. family. I don't think that's an exaggeration. No, it's not. It's 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 completely um, taken away, utterly destroyed. Also taken away from me is the concept of truth. Yes. And reality. Yes. Because there's not many things that are cut and dried <laughs> in the world, right? <laughs> there's a lot of grey. There is. But a man and a woman cut and dried. Mm. If they can convince us and they have done on those messages into the future that you just choose, take yeah. a few pills, have a quick operation, even though they don't do it, they think it. They do. They're lost. They've lost. They're lost. They've lost yeah. truth. They've lost mm. an objective. I look at it like they've taken these tyrants and Marxists, and it's funny that you use that phrase because these days people don't know who we're describing because they think, oh, Marxism, that's an old thing, right? But there are tyrants and would-be tyrants amongst us, typically mm. in academia, mm. also within working their way through academia and big bureaucracies and yep. interchanging between there who want control they do um they have hit the jackpot with this one yeah i thought they'd hit the jackpot funnily enough with climate change because <laughs> i thought if if you can control back in the early 90s uh, professor explained to me if you can control carbon dioxide emissions then you control the entire industrial process of the world. Yeah. And this is what this is set up to do. Then I watched COVID unfold, and I thought, my goodness, if you can lock people up, force them, mm -hmm. to, force them to close their businesses, sit two metres away from everyone, go through all this performance of putting a mask on, they can get us to do anything. And yeah. then they can say, take this jab or else lose your job or all your social life. And I think, man, Next minute, they convince their kids that they're not a boy or a girl. That's right. They just choose it. Mm -hmm. They're assigned. That's it. Now, I noticed in our school, it's all changing a bit. So when I send off an email, they say, no, 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 we're not having inside out. Oh, no, 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 we're not doing all that stuff now. 
So something's happened. But I look at these lovely teachers. Seem very nice people. Love kids. I had to suffer them telling the kids to mask up and take the jab, which I thought was shocking. Mm. You're being hammered by the principal about how everyone has to have the jab. And you're thinking, when did you become the health expert? Oh, when you're the school principal. Yeah. So you had that. But how is it possible, Wendy, that these lovely school teachers who are mothers and fathers teaching this our kids' lives? Yeah. Well, I, th I know, as I said, there are some that they don't want to do that. Um, I spoke at a Christian school uh, a few weeks ago. They don't have to teach this yet, and I'll say that yet with a, I hope it never happens for them. But there are teachers who want to leave. There are teachers who are refusing to do it, to acknowledge, um, for instance, pronouns, um, because they understand that the repercussions of that child going into becoming a trans person are horrendous. As an adult, they've looked into that and they understand that. Whereas the child doesn't understand that. So, and we know that one of our teachers in um, Auckland, I believe, uh, lost his job. Um, lost his registration. His registration, yes. To never um, teach again. Never teach again. Imagine because that. Because he was the only one in the system yeah. telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I just, what I don't, for, for me, I, I struggle with the fact that some teachers, feel it's fine to just teach this stuff. I really struggle with that. Me too. But then we live in a society which is relative. We live in a society where things change all the time. And and as you say, through academia, teachers have come through academia. They've learned certain certain ways of thinking. And um, they're using this kind of thinking, those that go with the flow, um, perhaps that is where they're coming from. I would just encourage them to stop, to stop and ask what they're doing, to stop and check what's happening, to dig in and to find the stuff that they, that for instance, um, family planning puts out, which is a thing called, um, um, what's it called? Something about the journey. Um, and they, you know, family planning is one of the groups like Inside Out and and so on. If you if they had to just look at those resources, which the Ministry of Ed recommends in their documentation, they will realize that certain things like this come out of it. And it, surely if they know that, as you say, surely, surely, if they know that these are things that the teacher needs to explain, um, explain that when we become sexually active, this is to 11-year-olds, we should get regular tests and checks to monitor our health just as we go to the dentist to have our teeth checked. So you see how it's it's changing the whole thing. It's to totally do with, normalizing it. Yes, normalizing it. And then these are some of the things that the activity cards that family planning puts out in navigating the journey. They talk about um, one of the things uh, for eleven year olds, eleven to twelve year olds. It's intermediate level. Um, it's called run roundabout lusty activity cards. And some of the things that the children are given, they're given work cards. I've seen them, I've seen the documentation, I ordered it, I've got it on my computer. They have work cards which say things like, and I'm, I'm smiling because I'm embarrassed, not because it's funny, things like 
these are some of the things you should talk about in your groups. Off you go, discuss them. Number one, rub body together with clothes on. Who does that and how? If, talk about your experience of that. Talking on the phone for ages, let's talk about that. Let's talk about masturbating self in no. front of each other. This is from family planning. Let's talk about phone sex. In your groups, off you go, go and discuss that. In your groups, discuss discuss flirty texts and how those work. Discuss anal sex. Discuss. No. Uh, I kid oh you not. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, talking about various, you know, text sex and taking your clothes off and things like that. When that happens. So this is a document or a, a, a resource which is okayed by the Ministry of, of Education. And I have heard that, um, and I think it was on um, on your programs, one of your programs, that um, some ministers, possible ministers that are in national are, are want to query this, want to query what's going on in the uh, relationships and sexuality education. I'm I'm hoping and praying that that is the case. I know there will be people that will start to speak out because they know more about it. But when you see what I'm thinking is sometimes teachers are never allowed to just go off and not be in the classroom. Therefore, they must be maybe doing something differently when these outside groups come in and do stuff with them. Or else they must think that this is okay. And if they do, teachers, I've been a teacher all my life. You can't do this and think it's okay. You no. can't. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to stop there, Wendy, because okay. it's so outrageous and shocking. Words fail you. Yeah, they do. They do. And you cry, I get angry. I can't shut up about it because it's just so appalling. It is. Everyone's sick of me talking about it because I don't know how to stop it. It's so wrong. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What do you know about this? Are we overblowing it? Is it happening at your kids' or grandkids' school? Have you found out? Do you know? Have you talked to your kids about what's happening? It's a tough conversation. Oh, what's the teacher telling you about this? <laughs> Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radiallycheck.radio. That was the wonderful Wendy Fowler, who's standing up and speaking out and going around groups, like Bob McCroskey, like Penny Marie, and warning people, telling people what is going on. I started off on sport with Row Edge, but it's deeper than that. This is yeah. an attack on the foundations of our society. It is. Th thank you for listening. Uh, I don't know how to process it. I even how to end it because it's so shocking to me. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now.
You're on Rally Check Radio, and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text on 2057. You can send me a email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I have a special treat today. I have a wonderful couple who have built the most amazing garden and are sharing that with the world through books and videos and workshops and courses. And it's Neva and Yotam Kay. Now, tell me the name of your farm. The name of the farm is Pakaraka Farm. Say that slowly. Pakaraka. Pakaraka. Like the Paca, tree, you know the Paca, tree? Pakaraka. Pakaraka. Like a pa and karaka like the tree. Karaka. Pakaraka. Oh, I'm going to struggle. <laughs> now, tell me, you describe it as a regenerative farm and a permaculture farm. Mm-hmm. What is the definition of those two things? So um, when we talk about regenerative, I guess the term in itself has two different meanings and it's a little bit different, I think, farm level and garden level. But uh, in, in one basic meaning is uh, we, for example, have 180 acres of, of regenerating native bush on the farm. Yes. And, but also we do talk about... Um, you know when we when we try and make sure that our soil is alive that we are um yeah building soil health building ecosystem health that's essentially what and, it, and yeah. i'll add to that is that yeah, yeah we're making the soil better and also richer in carbon specifically yeah, yeah. okay so that? building up the organic matter naturally yeah yes and, and uh, way that just yeah please and uh modern, if I can use that word, or technologically advanced farming practice post-World War II Mm. is not to worry about the carbon, just the nutrients, and not build up the compost. So, yeah, you're right. There's a lot after the Green Revolution, which is uh, wrongly named after World War II, where the chemicals had gotten into into agriculture. Uh, people have been relying, or many farmers have been relying on chemical fertilizers to just bring in those nutrients in a very uh, purified form, which actually usually makes the usually um, decreases the amount of both carbon and living forms in the soil. Whereas when you look at organic farming, you're actually looking at not feeding the plants directly through compost and other fertilizers, but actually the primary part is to create a very lush living soil ecology that then those those nutrients get uh, available to the plants by the action of the of the soil biology about the living microorganisms and that mm. food web. And permaculture, I got regenerative yeah. uh, farming, that's <laughs> uh-huh. building up the soil and the carbon and the compost. What's permaculture? Permaculture is actually a design uh, methodology, so it can be applied onto land-based projects, but it can be applied in other contexts too. And it's got uh, primary ethics, which are earth care, people care, and fair share. So you have to say that slower for me. <laughs> and it's got so it's got the primary ethics, the permaculture ethics, earth care, earth people care, care, people care, fair share. Got it. Okay. And then um, it's it's really about um, sort of observing and creating um, 
loops rather than so you know creating uh, nutrient loops creating energy cycles um there's sort of this idea in permaculture that there's no such thing as waste mm-hmm. um, so sort of you know really thinking about the movement of of matter and energy through your system um there's uh a, a, a permac- there's a quite a variety like the 12 permaculture principle the 12 permaculture that's principles that's one set of principles yes. um which are, are really great um and it's just sort of yeah guidance so when you're looking at so if, so if, for example you are using it on a on a land in a land based context you might um use different um design principles and different sort of ways of thinking to consider how might i create something that um that apply that applies to all so what that. i'm what i'm taking from that is that the regenerator far- farming is sort of what we do in our home gardens and we put compost and we care for the soil and we build up the earthworms and the microorganisms and we get a good ecology going in our soil so we get this nice rich soil that has living things in it and it's a ecosystem mm-hmm. but permaculture is sort of next level is that is that the understanding that i'm getting here it's like another level to that i think for me permaculture would be what i what i think about before i started the garden i'm thinking where do i put the garden where do i put my chicken so it's easy for me to take any scraps from the garden to the chicken where do i how do i organize my watering so the water flow through the land in the most efficient way that retains the most water and so forth uh, yeah i'd say that permaculture is it is like on a different plane as you're saying it's a different um parallel system that that helps design and and then has a lot of different types of tools in the toolbox and there's no just one method of permaculture no, and so okay. yeah it it is i it, feel i always have these oops moments cuz i've had a lot of changes in the past couple of years and i've started gardening mm-hmm. and um which i'm loving but i always have these oops moments because people say oh and you do it like this and i think oh i never did that and i've sort of done my garden oh i'll put that there and oh i better put some water on oh i might get some chooks and i haven't actually thought it through and i'm feeling one of those oop moments and i saw the pictures on your webpage oh my goodness <laughs> like your farm your garden is stunningly beautiful yeah and it's luxuriant and it's clearly from that original design a lot of it is with that original design and we've came with a lot of background um nearly of a decade of work around gardens and permaculture and and um um i i don't know if that's surprised or not but i would do things differently now slightly if i oh, could oh well, that's good because but i'm yeah. like that <laughs> but, <laughs> i mean that's that's what it is it's a learning evolving yeah. process it's and it's a living of, system right yeah and i mean part of it is exactly that it is an organic system in the way that that things can change and and looking at observation and receiving feedback loops and making changes i mean we're really happy with a lot of fundamental things but when for example when we um many of the pictures you've seen are our primary garden that we established in 2015 whereas we've established um 3 years ago we established a new garden and we've done things um 
slightly different. And so, uh, for example, in our first garden, we've done everything by hand. And so we have terraced because we are on a significant slope um, on in our main in our main quarter acre gardens. And so we have we've we've terraced things and ma- basically made our garden beds. Um, on contour, so perpendicular to the slope. Oh, wow. And I can talk more about this, but uh, if you want, but um, yeah. or we well, can leave it for later. Just for anyone listening that's got their uh, listening and they have their computer here, look up Packer Racker Farm, all one word, .co.nz. And while you're listening, uh, you can be watching and seeing because there's uh, videos and beautiful pictures. Um, and also these wonderful courses and two beautiful books uh, for sale. And it's not often you have your breath taken away when you look at a web page <laughs> on a garden, but this one will. It's like something out of old England and its beauty. So extremely well done. Now, I'm going to be rude because Yotam, is that the correct, correct pronunciation? It's a hard one, and I don't say it myself often uh, in the correct way, but if I concentrate, um, Yotam. Yotam. Yes. That's the boy and Neva. Did I get that correct? That's the lady. So um, that's where we are, and they're a wonderful couple. Um, How did you get into Neva? Was it you first or Yotam? Who or did you find it separately and then come together? How did you arrive in in this wanting to be regenerative permaculture farmers? Maybe not that, but to be farming differently. Where did that arise? Um, yeah, it, it actually did happen separately for each of us. And each of us had been lucky that uh, we spent during our civil service in Israel time in organic farms and discovered organic farming that way. And we met in university studying um, interdisciplinary environmental studies. And mm. one of our courses there was also in sustainable agriculture. And, and, and then we took co- you know courses in sustainable law and sustainable education and lots and lots of, of things. But when we sort of talked to, together about, well, what do we do next? Where do we feel like we can make an impact? We can be the change. We can have our hands in it. Uh, we felt that agriculture was was the place where we can do that. And from there, we started yeah, extensive uh, learning into permaculture, f- further learning, I would say. And uh, yeah, that we were very young. So we've been doing this together for 17 years now. Yeah. How wonderful. How very, very wonderful. You'd be surprised to know that I did a master's degree in interdisciplinary environmental studies. Awesome. And I taught environmental studies. Uh, Funnily enough, we talked of sustainability, but it didn't become a big thing uh, until Mm. the Brundtland Report and then um, the Resource Management Act. So... um, I'm sort of almost returning to my roots and having this conversation, but I never saw it, funnily enough, much to my chagrin and erroneous thinking and behavior as a thing that you did. (laughs) To me, it was like a policy thing and a political Mm. thing and getting policies and changing the world because I was young and arrogant. 
and now I realize that um, far better to do and I inspire guess we need others. All the things, eh? Yeah, yeah. We, I'm some, we're sometimes, in our good days, we're really happy where we are and what we're doing. In our other good days, oh, we should have gone, I should have gone into, poli- yeah. into politics or into policy. No, you're doing, uh, <laughs> you're everything, doing everyone. Wonderf- wonderfully right because um, you're living close to the earth. Um, so you came to New Zealand. Was that your first place that you set up once you'd left Israel? So we've been we've um, been doing... traveling and uh, volunteering in farms and uh, eco villages and places uh, very much all over. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Europe. That's our dog knocking on the door. Sorry, oh. <laughs> and, um, and we spent time in Costa Rica. That was really awesome uh, to be in the jungle and see. In Costa Rica, you know, they say you put a stick in the ground and it grows. It's just so different. It was amazing. Really amazing. Yeah. And then we came back to Israel and then we came to New Zealand. Yeah. And I have a lot of family here in New Zealand. My granddad um, I had was born here and I've got my family here since the oh, 1840s. Wow. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so it was a lot of connections. We've got lots of loving relationships here. That's amazing. So yeah. you came to uh, ready-made ancestry and large extended family mm. of people that had been living here a long, long time. Yes. Yeah. My goodness. Um, is it rude to ask they would be Jewish? Yes. Yeah, the, it's the Nathan family. Uh, uh, okay, of course. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. So yeah, they're like Nathan and, and the beer and the, and yeah. the and So yeah, you so have, yeah, that's a huge family in New Zealand. Yes. Um, on a kibbutz, are they farming regeneratively and um, in a permaculture way, or does it vary? It, it does varies. Vary. It yeah. varies. And we spend time in, in various different kibbutzim, and some of them, uh, one place that at least. Well, two, several for sure. A few places we've been to that are all, all like really organic. Uh, there's one place that's very dedicated, Kibbutz Rotan, if anyone is ever going, um, dedicated to. Um, teaching permaculture, Ktora, uh, where we met, is a kibbutz that has both sort of that sustainable agriculture and then they also have other elements, so it kind of depends on also individual members taking a project. And I you know, see. And, and, and does a kibbutz have a sort of community structure where they decide things and they could decide to set up in a particular way and farm in a particular pattern? Yes, definitely. I mean, part of the sad thing is that a lot of the kibbutzim who were not very uh, successful with their industry um, were had collapsed. So there no, is not it's collapsed. They privatized. Privatized. So let's okay. not go into the whole history yeah, of kibbutzim. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, I brought that in. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need to. But, uh, but, but yeah, no, different kibbutzim hard. are doing different things. Mm. Yeah. So when did you come? I gotta look at it every time. I've got a I tell everyone this. I got a dyspraxia. I've worked out it late in life because I have a little son who has it, and I realize mm-hmm. I have it. And mm-hmm. I can read extremely well. I'm not dyslexic or anything, but I struggle with unfamiliar words. Even familiar words I struggle with. I gotta very much concentrate. It's very tiring. And when I come across a new word or someone's um name. No matter how hard I try, I mangle it. Pakaraka. 
got it right. Pakaraka. <laughs> That's perfect. When did you come to Pakaraka? In 2014. Yeah, and we arrived and, to New Zealand in 2012. Yeah. And what was there in 2014 on the, where you have your garden? Um, so there has been on the farm, uh, there are olives and chestnuts and pecans and animals. And there's the uh, pre-existing home orchard and, and other, and yeah, here in Genesis yeah. Garden was here. And, and was, yeah. So it was being farmed well. Yeah, yeah, yes. farmed and well, organically, organically off grid, managing yeah. your own water supply. And when we okay. joined in, um, we have established our market garden and then later our education center as our own project within the farm. And basically. then father gave everything else together. Um, so, in many ways, would this be like an ideal kibbutzim? Like you're in a community <laughs> of the farm. Is that or am I stretching? It is in a way. I mean, it's, it's an amazing small. Community. It's not like a whole kibbutz, you know, with a hundred families. Uh, yeah, or a it's more. Um, but it it is yeah it is a, a community, and we love yeah being part of it. It's great. So it was a situation where um, you didn't start with a bare piece of paddock that had been running sheep. Um, so you joined did, a, a, a garden was so. our garden was literally a, a bare piece of paddock. Oh well, that's great. And we have calculated that uh, the area that we grow the vegetables on, where we can grow ten tons of vegetables, used to support two sheep. Am I correct? Maximum, yes. Yeah. So because you've gone from two sheep to ten tons of vegetables. Did that's you right. Yeah. Oh my goodness! So that's my question. What did you do to make the soil extra good? Um, so, I mean, we, we look at, at first of all, the, the larger landscape, and, and we used a lot of market gardening techniques based off our experience and what we've seen others do overseas. And so we have, uh, we're very influenced with the grow biointensive movement um, and what the work we do in ecology action. Okay, we've really taken care of the soil with both... Um, uh, making sure that there's no hard pan and increasing the organic matter and intensively planting. Um, and so we have uh, designed our garden beds. So most of them are perpendicular to the slope. So that's the kind of the first thing to keep the nutrients and to keep the water from eroding the soil. So we can build that up. We used a lot of compost. Uh, we've used about five to 10 centimeters of compost in the first couple of years and then moved to about two and a half to five centimeters of compost a year. We only use hand tools. We mostly use a garden fork or a wide garden fork um, to aerate the bed. So minimum intervention and tillage. We grow very intensively. We have between usually between three to even up to eight crops in the same garden bed in the same year. One my after the other. Three to eight crops. Oh, my yeah, goodness. So basically something goes in. Um, but the moment it, need, it comes out, um, we put something else in. Sometimes we even interplant and, and plant a new crop into the other crop as a nursery. Really um, so similar to companion plant. Things. We rely both on direct sowing and on transplanting. Uh, we've got a lot of little, a lot of little and big tricks that we use to make this work. Uh, we also um, use um, broad spectrum fertilizers, so things like seaweed, like rock dust, so natural amendments that are suitable for organic production because we're certified organic. And um, working with soil tests to fine tune what we need. Um, we did a lot of biological inoculants in the beginning, um, less so recently because we needed less. Uh, we've improved our watering system that really helps a lot build soil. 
Um, we will occasionally introduce uh, biological control as well. So totally uh, bringing in parasitic wasp to, um, you know, to control aphids in the tomatoes, things like that. And we could have done, I can say, there's other things we can do to even make things better and more uh, healthy oriented to for our soil. But we also had to be kind of, uh, we are commercially oriented because we sell most of our produce and we make our living from our gardens. And so we we make compromises like everyone. And I think something that people have, I find really encouraging is that we also kill plants. <laughs> it's not <Yeah. laughs> that we're immune to that. Not everything succeeds. We but also sometimes forget to get to that tray of plants <laughs> that are ready to be planted. Oh, just don't get to it because we're optimistic. We can do more than we can chew. My, but, yeah. my wife accidentally dug up my little pumpkins that I'd been nurturing to grow. Oh. And I'd got them up this high, like an inch. <laughs> And I was so proud of them. And then she was working elsewhere in the garden. I wasn't there. Mm. And she dug over to get some nice soil and compost my pumpkins. Mm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> our marriage survived, has survived my yeah. loss of my pumpkins. Because I don't actually like pumpkins. Um, so I thought of all <laughs> the things fine. that I can do without, I can go without pumpkins. Tell me. They only you know, grow what you like. What yeah. Yeah. I know. But I thought I'll give it a go. So you have a slope. Yeah, and you've terraced it, and mm. that's what you mean by perpendicular, making yes. those terraces. Um, so it's not necessarily like a big terrace. It could be like every single bed on that slope being uh, perpendicular, and then has a little better. And that's what we've done with our first original part, which we've um, worked as much as we could on on contour. But then in our new gardens, we've actually terraced um, like a group bigger, of six to yeah. nine beds, and then made a bigger okay. better. And and what have you used as the barrier to the soil? Have you got so, like woods? In most places, we haven't done a thing. We've just got um, like basically a small earth batter, and yes. so that and so on that slope, each bed uh, is just supported okay. by the soil, and we use minimum forking on the edges of it. And so with those beds, we tend to. Uh, put crops that uh, are transplanted rather than direct sowed. We tend to uh, plant things that stay there for a long time. We use mulches occasionally or plant in weed mats. So we've got different crops that kind of work better on the on the big slopes. And then uh, we don't really have flat beds, like per se, <laughs> flat, but it's all about varying degrees of slope. And also nothing is north facing too, which is uh, something I like mentioning. Some, so we have some on those bigger terraces, we have some that are... Uh, Con contained with untreated wood and we have some that are just have weed met I'd on them and like, plants out of like the 54 beds in our main gardens two beds are terraced with wood so with with chestnut um with uh chestnut landscaping timber which we got from a local mill uh, we would have used sleepers a bit more heavily but uh, cost wise um it's we can do what uh, like we as i said the, the economics of it we we can get away with what we're doing without it and so instead of adding another let's say 500 dollars yes. of sleepers per bed yes. um we can we can just do it the way we do it and you said they're not north facing yes no not nobody's north facing on our gardens just, um, just because we're in a valley and, and we've got a big hecatea tree on the north, uh, which also shades the garden really heavily in winter. So, in one of our gardens. Yeah, and, and also is, lots of rocks. I can tell all my problems too, if you like. <laughs> yeah. So you would prefer to be north-facing, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because yeah. the little solar panels of the plants would work better. That's right. Yeah. And you must do a huge amount of forking. 
So it, I, did, I, that, yeah. I hope that didn't sound rude. No, um, okay. um, uh, um, yeah. So I, I'd say that that when we start a garden bed for the first time, so when we've taken that paddock that was very compacted with a century of grazing, we have, first of all, put some weed mat or geotextile to suppress the grass and kill all the big weeds um, by preventing the plants from photosynthesizing. And then we took the one, we used sticks and strings to mark where the garden beds were. And then we used the fork and did very small chunks of biting with the fork, about five centimeters intervals, and then we did that only once. And then again, we for the first few years, we did that probably two, twice a year, sometimes three, sometimes once. And now we're in a rhythm that we only need to do that once a year um, oh, wow. in, the, in the autumn, winter or spring, because we've developed the soil structure. So with all that biological life and the roots of the plants and the organic, um, matter. And the organic matter, that all just improved our soil tremendously. So it looks nothing like the original um, soil that is just a few meters next to the garden. Isn't that amazing? Because we have our gardening guru, Professor Wally Richards, um, and he keeps telling me this is how you garden. And, of course, it's so counterintuitive to me because my father was a great gardener and Mm. I never learned to think from him, but he was forever digging it. Mm. There's so many ways of doing it and there's nothing wrong. It's just there are benefits to each system. It's better to use a fork. But it's also better not to, like, it's better to dig than not or dig if you need that air in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. What do you use for your weed mat? So we use um, UV stabilized horticultural grade geotextiles that we order from from uh, different horticultural suppliers. And then we just use that again and again. So the same fabrics we've used um, to cover our garden beds in the beginning, we still use them occasional rotation. So most, if if uh, we want to cover the beds for the winter because there's no sun, we'll put them on. If we want to, uh, if a bed got out of hand and uh, we don't want to see that headache, we'll we'll mow it and then put that on and wait another month or two and then have a blank slate again. Um, we use Amazing. it also for landscaping, uh, like the edges around the garden or for tunnel house structures. And you lay your weed mat down and you make a hole in it to plant the plant. So sometimes we used to rely on that a bit more heavily, influenced by some other uh, farmers overseas. I tend to prefer to just work with the soil and not plant in weed mat, but there are yes. amazing advantages to doing it. Um, we see we saw great success with our strawberries and with our summer plantings because it really heats up the soil and allows, while still allowing the moisture to get in, it suppresses weeds. Um, it, it's great for the plants. And, and if you make the holes big enough, it's nice for planting. It's just... We only use it for crops that that um, it works for us that stay in the ground for a long time. We have courgettes at the moment in with Matt. Yeah, and we were thinking that's the, almost the only crop currently in with. Yeah, we could have we could have done a bit more, but um, we we don't rely on it. But it's another tool in our toolbox, depending mm. on, on what we want to do. Um, mm. So we see great results with it, and we also can get the same results um, or better results without it. So, and yeah. the weed mat that you use is uh, can be used over and over and over again yeah. yes wow. yes so we buy only, we use plastics in the garden but we use really high quality durable material so we don't use disposable things but yeah um yeah which we, we try and minimize it but but it is a tool that helps a lot i mean we would have loved to put a lot more organic mulch like leaves and organic straw and wood chips it's just um it's how to do it on the scale that we're doing so yeah yeah, so we do it according to how much energy we've got to be able to do it how much area of garden do you have so we now um 
um, as we expanded into the new garden, we have the, the possibility, and we garden for one season with 1,500 square meters. But we don't operate So that's about a third of an acre. And But now what we're doing is uh, we are still growing on a quarter acre, but what we did is we retired some of the most slopey south-facing garden beds in our main garden and used the new area that is also south-facing, but but a much better uh, sunny garden and, and easier to grow. So we're just growing about 1,000 square meters. West. West, southwest facing. Yeah, it's mm. really misleading because it gets uh, every, like it gets full sun throughout the because year. it's west facing. But it's, it's west, west south. Can't say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, uh, and so, yeah, we, we are still growing on about a thousand square meters on a quarter acre. Just um, change the. That's amazing. Wind. And you produce 10 tons of vegetables. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Some years a bit more, some years a bit less. And uh, that, and that is, you're in the Coromandel? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Just outside of Thames. So it's good weather for growing, apart from the fact you haven't got a north slope. So, I mean, the last year we had <laughs> rain pretty much oh, yes. the whole year. And we have, um, you know, we had uh, ex-cyclone Gabriel. Uh, recently, Lola came to visit us as well. So it it's not always easy. Just just the um, the flooding is, a, is a, an issue. But mm. we do have, it is interesting because we're in a valley, we get about three hours less of direct sunlight than Tim's. But because we still get eight to 12 hours of direct sunlight, we can really support main season vegetables while also having an early morning shade, which actually makes it easier for us because we grow a lot of greens and salads that we sell locally. And so it actually gives us a nice harvesting window until like nine, 10 in the morning. And mm. so we keep harvesting. We get all of those delicate stuff before the sun hits and then the quality is just so much better. And again, because we're in the valley, we do get frosts and and so forth. Yeah, so we're like not quite ten like to forty a year. Yeah, mm. we're still. I'm in Otago, and we got a frost <laughs> twice this week. No, yeah, well, uh, it's been an unusually weird. Yeah. Oh well, and that's not unusual. Oh. I mean, it can snow at really? this time into, of year. Oh wow, into November. So it's tough gardening. Um, yeah. and, and I get warning because um, we have vineyards in the valley mm -hmm. and they have automatic big fans that come on, big diesel-powered right. fans. And so they come on at sort of 2 in the morning or 3 in the morning <laughs> or 4 in the morning, and it's like a jet engine taking off, um, protecting the moving the inversion layer. So you know, oh, it's a frost. And I think, oh, I should get up and protect my plants. And now oh, I roll over and go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll let nature take its course. Now, when you originally got your compost, mm. what compost did you use and how did you get it? Yeah, so we use different types of compost for the year. We also make a lot of our own. We've been making between 5 to 20 cubic meters a year. And recently, um, we've we've had developed a relationship with the local uh, fisheries, and they uh, bring us uh, usually between 50 to uh, 200 kgs of fish a week. So we make a lot of compost with that now. Wow. Um, but our original compost was, so part of our gardening system and closing loops is that we grow a lot of microgreens. So basically, uh, greens that are not sprouts, but not baby leaf, something in between that we grow in potting mix or compost. And so for the first few seasons, we've used... Um, we've used organic potting mix to grow our microgreens. And then once we've grown our microgreens, we let them 
we took all the soil with all the roots and plant material, let that decompose again, and then put that in our garden. So that initial potting mix uh, was really great. Um, I've, since then, we've been using just organic compost to growing our microgreens. We found that to be our most cost-effective, and our supplier changed from wholesale bags to, to small bags, and we couldn't really stand using that many plastic bags. So mm. we, we, try, we adapted our systems a bit. Um, and so, yeah, we, we don't usually use compost that's fresh, like we bought into the garden. We use it for microgreens and then we put it on and we make our own and some, sometimes supplement a bit more because we really want to make sure we have more compost rather than less to support so, that. Yes. They're not giving us fish, they're giving us the fish frames. Fish and... frames, yes. All the waste of the fish. Yes. Yeah. Not yes. The microgreens, explain them to me. People buy them for what salads, is it? Yeah, yeah. So they they're very lovely. Um, they're they're quite actually nutrient rich, and so yes. basically, so we we would plant a whole lot of seeds in a tray in in organic compost, as Tom said, and they'll grow um, to under the, ten centimeters, yeah, just but, usually to the cotyledon stage. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah, with most most of them, and then you just harvest them like that, so and the, you can have them, you know, use them as garnish, or you can mix them into your salad, or have them in a sandwich and um, we do radishes and and uh, peas and so they're also quite yeah nicely flavored yeah. and so then you take their uh potting mix and the roots of those greens and then put them in your compost exactly and yes. turn them over and the potting mix that you use where do you get that so we 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 sometimes make our own, but again, just because there's so many things to do, we often buy it. So uh, we use Dalton's organic potting mix. Yes, um, that's a main a main source for us. We do have troubles with the supply, um, and yeah, we have played and we do intend on doing more of our own potting mix um, using our soil, our compost, um, potentially pumice or even sand from the farm next to the river. Um, yeah, we, we'll experiment. But uh, but that, that potting mix has been great. We've also reduced our need for potting mix a lot by increasing our, our garden slightly. We're able now to do more direct sowing of crops and less transplants. So we're actually using about a tenth of the amount of potting mix we did when we started. Um, and so we're being a little bit more wasteful in space by germinating all our plants straight in the soil, but it does save us quite a lot of work because our 15 meter long beds, it takes us five to 10 minutes to sow them. Whereas if we do transplants to then go to be planted in that same bed, it would take a bit of time to sow them into pots, take care of them and then plant them. Yes. And so we're being... And so, yeah. so you've got the soil in those beds as mm. good as potting mix over um, time. Yeah, in some ways, for sure. Um, the, the potting mix, we do see that there is a big difference between the different types of composts, um, but but we are able to sustain a really high level of fertility and yields with with even regular pot compost and not that that more premium potting mix as well. I think that if you think of a plant that's growing in a pot versus a plant that's growing in the soil, in the soil, it has excess to the whole soil so it's yes. where in a plant because it's so limited that's why it has to be really really good that's why you need really good potting mix because that's all the plant is going to get yes. in, if it's in the soil water flows bacteria come and go air forms will pass you know it's got and uh, it's going to grow its root and excess a lot more than than a plant in, in a pot which is why it's it's not that the soil has to be like potting mix it's just 
because yeah. of the constraint, it needs to be a lot richer. I also wanted to add that for the compo the potting mix we are using, we're still adding broad spectrum minerals to the base mix because we don't find that it's good enough to support plants after the third week. And we mm. also use inoculants or add some of our own compost that's really live. And so we're just thinking of how can we inoculate those plants through the roots, through the leaves um, as exactly. early as possible so then they have a much better support network as we're going. Do you test your soil for nutrients and pH? Yes, yeah. we've done that um, quite a few times, not every year, but most years. And when, whenever we need a new um, mix, fertilizer mix to be made, um, then, then yeah, we test it again and then um, get something that's specifically suited to the minerals that, that we're lacking. When we started off, we didn't do that. We just went with a, with a, a wholesale, like a big ton of, of broad spectrum fertilizer. Um, but, but yeah, we, we really want to prevent any limiting, limiting factors for more plants to be healthy and, and high yielding. When you inoculate the soil, mm. what are you inoculating it with? So various things. Um, so usually the custom mixes that we have or, or the fertilizer also comes already pre-composted and inoculated. Um, high quality compost, especially ones that we make ourselves is very very full of life so a lot of people make compost and then use it immediately when it looks like good soil but leaving it for about two or three months after that to let the life become more and more complex actually makes the compost not just a good source of organic matter and nutrients but also of biological activity we also use different types of liquid feeds so either we we uh, mix our good compost with water and spray that we sometimes use molasses sprays we use seaweed sprays we use occasionally fish sprays um, there are also different bacteria, inoculants that you can buy. We used to source it from a company that doesn't sell it at the moment, but there are many online um, so that you can you can get those uh, similar to probiotic pills for your garden or yes. potting mix. Um, and and we think we've we have got um, a really wide range of of animals uh, living in our soil at, at this time, and even we can see that. Uh, problems that we used to have and we're not saying we won't have them again but uh, but aphids for example we have a really we've created a really healthy uh, ecosystem that that supports beneficial insects uh, but i think i'm going uh, we have a lot of ladybugs that's for sure yeah because <laughs> you can tell too that i mean i've my where i am where i've got my garden had been sheep pasture mm. and I picked an easy spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's the and way. it happens to be the clayiest place oh. uh, on the whole thing. I, you know, there's a few things I did wrong and very windy, um, mm. which I discovered. And I've got, I'm growing like 500 beach trees. Yeah. I've, I've love got the wind. In, yeah. And I've got them in pots. Um, and that's where I got interested in. Um, inoculation because mm. I you realize that in a beach forest mm. there's fungi and microorganisms that live symbiotically with the beech trees and mm -hmm. provide them with nutrients. And I um I have actually gone out into the beach forest and gathered up some detritus mm -hmm. and spread awesome. amongst the trees. But the nursery man uh, down in Invercargill said he felt that, you know, because they've had a nursery for over 100 years, that he thinks it's actually pretty good. But you get very conscious of this, and I get very excited because even, even in a year, I have seen the soil 
improve somewhat. I've got a mm. way to go. Yeah. And of course, you notice that as you grow things, that too improves the soil, just growing things. Mm -hmm. um, improves it. I'm still learning about the savagery of the cold. And we get very short days. And now I'm actually dealing with hot, hot sun. So, um, you know, it, it, the sun beats down. So I'm going to have to now put up, I think, some shade cloth because I can see my little leaves turning up their, turning up their ends, thinking this is a bit, a bit hot. Um, so you learn all these things, but it is a, a, a wonderful experience. And I was interested in your inoculation. When you get your fish frames which are the rubbish after they've filleted the fish yeah so it'd be like a fish head fish bones fish tails fish scales what do you do with them so uh, we'll <laughs> be able still to an experiment in yeah because we've been only doing it for a few months and we've tried a few different things um we have we have um yeah, we'll be able to tell you a lot more about it next year if we would like to talk to us again. Um, well, are you still experimenting? Now, <clears throat> totally. What I can see now, though, is that um, mixing, so we, we're trialing different layers of compost. We're also not mechanized. So if we had a tractor or a digger, which we can't really justify for other uses, that we would have done that. But basically, we're looking at how to make this um, using our current systems and tools. So uh, we found that we can use... Um, uh, big plastic drums and and then cut the bottoms and the tops and then layer it out with different ingredients. So put a layer of fish, put a layer of, um, we use wood chips or sawdust, we use garden waste, um, and then we, we layer those. And then uh, we found that it does, while it heats up really well and keeps temperature really high, we find that turning it is, is really useful in this regard. So we don't usually turn our compost. Uh, we also add biochar quite a lot. And so charcoal we made specifically as a garden amendment. And we also add a bit of ash. And so we're finding that turning the compost is really helpful. Um, again, if we had uh, if we had uh, more machinery, we would have maybe done this a bit more. But um, yeah, and then it heats up again. And, and what I'm seeing is that the fish frames and the fish heads are pretty much disintegrated completely. So wow. five months in from our first compost, I don't see them at all. Um, so it's just, it still feels... It still has a really strong fish smell and it's still not fully decomposed. Um, so we'll keep experimenting with different um, carbon material, but it looks great. And I'm sure that um, it's, 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 it's the start of the end of us needing to get compost from outside of the farm, or except maybe for, for microgreens growing. One thing we're going to try as well is to introduce composting worms um, into the into those. Yes. Okay. So while we keep learning, like we we keep experimenting, and it is exciting to always find new things to do differently. Um, and we also keep learning from students who come to our workshops and events. So we're really um, not closed-minded. And even when we teach, we try and share as many like approaches mm. to doing this the same thing and getting mm. the results you need. So a person who just came to our workshop last weekend uh, suggested look if I am um, I've had I've done a lot of fish composting uh, worms are amazing with fish so keep the the moisture high and get uh, get the worms in and so that's going to be one something new that we'll be doing we'll also be doing soldier fly um, cultivation on the fish frames and and yeah. and then feed that to the chicken something we've done in the past we're a little bit reluctant to to keep growing more of those grubs but but uh, it is an amazing source for the chickens and I think we can make it work uh, we also maybe in the future get 
we've got our chickens in a separate area close to our other garden, which in a, maybe in the future we'll also get the chickens into that same composting area so they can eat what they want. They'll poop, they'll compost it, and then we will both feed our chickens directly and make compost. Um, yeah, we'll be experimenting, and it's it's going to be an space. What you're saying about the design mm. is quite crucial because you don't have a tractor. Mm. Totally. So um, I did a lot of composting with horse manure that I was mm. able to get locally. And um, I literally got truckloads and truckloads and truckloads of it. And um, as as the little truck would tip it off, I'd spread out some organic matter and wet it. And I built up a you know a pile a, a meter high, and it went to fifty degrees Celsius. I couldn't believe yes. it. And then I had a worm farm, so I kept feeding in excess worms. Awesome. But when it came to turning it, <laughs> I thought I'm not. I can't turn that. It's like it just would defeat me. It was. I had such a lot. However, um, it got really hot, and then obviously it burnt through, and I. And I'm still using it, and I've just got some this morning and uh, planted some um, trees out with using the compost, and it's still got the worms in it, and it's still nice and damp, and it's it's like soil. Awesome. And it's such a wonderful feeling because I get a bit annoyed going off to the shop to feel as though I've got to buy fertilizer and things if you know what i mean totally um i sort of feel as though i should be able to cope but um i understand now when you're saying about design and integrating it with your chooks um and that and the grubs that is uh, very very clever because like i said i have got a bit of space and I've spread things out and I look at it and I think I made a mistake there because I'm carrying everything so far. Mm. Have you got for your quarter acre plenty of water? Yes, we have. And I'll just say that for our chickens still make about five to eight cubic meters of compost a year, which we mostly use in our orchard, but sometimes we also use in the garden beds. But then we just need we have to compost we compost it or just compost. or wait 90 to 120 days before yeah. harvesting from that bed. So um yeah, we do a lot of you do a lot of shoveling. We do a lot of shoveling, and I did our, our chicken gate just uh, broke down, and I've decided to make the chicken new chicken gate wider enough so I can get a digger there occasionally, ah. <laughs> so we can shovel that out. How many chucks have you got? About twenty five and about five geese at the moment. Yeah, um, mm. yeah, plenty, plenty of eggs, uh, and they really work well uh, with the garden system. When you, who are your customers for your veggies? Um, just people from town. So we sell our um, our, our full range at the Thames Organic Shop, and then we also sell mainly salad and microgreens at um, a, a lo their local green grocer at a shop in Taiwan. Yeah, and uh, Westock Deli in Tianga. And then we have a local cafe, Melbourne Cafe, that we've been stocking twice a week since the very first week we started selling things my goodness 2014 um and then pe so so people yeah i think people in our area are quite they're just kind of used to having our salad you know as a staple yes. by now and 
uh, we know that you know that it, people will budget to be able to buy that uh, because we it's, it more, it's more expensive right it's I, I, I mean, if you would find the equivalent in in other big cities, uh, you would find it at the same price or more. But it is it is more expensive than supermarket salad because, because it's it fresh is, air and and it's organic and it's nutrient dense and all the amazing things that that this quality salad has. Um, and, and of so course, the more amazing we... to support so many families uh, eating this this really healthy yeah. Um, yeah healthy salad. So you're not selling directly to the families; you're actually supplying retailers. So we try different things over we, the years. Yeah, over the year we've we've done markets and we've done veggie boxes, but um, at the moment, yeah, the best thing for us is just to go to yeah small retailers. We've also been um, busy with some other projects, uh, like besides writing, writing mm -hmm. and workshops, and we're also building a house. So at the moment, we're still operating our garden as normal, but we are changing a little bit of how we do things to accommodate our changing needs. So mm. uh, we're working mostly as owner builders um, on this house, and so okay, yeah, markets don't don't suit at the moment. Tell us then about your workshops and seminars and teaching. And from there, or maybe you start the other way around, and from there, your books, because they look fascinating. So what's best, to start with the books or to start with the workshops? Maybe we'll start with the books, but I'll just um, I'll just plug in for a very short time that you asked about our water. So we get almost all our water from the hills above the gardens. Yes. So we have um, springs that turn into creeks that we dam, and then we capture in our big tank, and then gravity feed into our gardens. So that's our main uh, wow. water supply wow. um, so we have written two books uh, The Abundant Garden that came out in 2021 One. and book. The Abundant Kitchen that came out this year The Abundant Garden is a comprehensive guide to regenerative home gardening The Abundant Kitchen is a comprehensive guide to uh, making ferments, preserves and pickles and so both of, our, both of these books are um We've put everything we know and everything we love and everything we wish we could find in a book in them. And yeah, you tell me what do you want to say? No, that's awesome. Um, I'll, I'll open it for questions and then I can talk more. Yeah. Um, so how did you... Oh, that's my stupid phone ringing and I don't even know where it is. I apologize. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Um, I got so interested in the conversation i forgot to turn my phone off i do apologize i um you do a lot and you're building a house oh my goodness so why would i buy your gardening book um so you would join um over fourteen thousand people who did uh, if you know fourteen thousand. <laughs> Yes, it's a uh, it it was uh, number one bestseller for two weeks in the New Zealand charts and, and stayed in the bestseller list oh, for many goodness. many weeks and was yeah. the tenth bestselling book of two thousand twenty one. Um, it's it's an amazing gardening book. We uh, we wanted to title it uh, the best gardening book ever, but uh, the publishing team uh, had come up with this amazing name of Abandoned Garden, and it's both very beautiful and extremely practical and informative. And so whether you're just starting out and you need some ideas of how to design and start your garden or whether you have a garden and you need those tips, like why would I do this that way? Or what do I do if this is my context? Um, it's all there. It's really, really because comprehensive. The, the gardening I've bought 
it's like you start cooking and you end up with too many cookbooks. <laughs> um, they tell a joke that in the old days in New Zealand, everyone had one cookbook and cooked every night. And now yeah. they say that the average house has like 25 cookbooks and eats out five nights a week. Um, so it's easy to go overboard on the books. But I notice the gardening books tend to be, oh, I got the I, I got Wally's books, Wally Richards' books, and then I have the local Otago Times. Otago mm-hmm. Daily Times have produced a book for over a hundred years, nice. and I love it because it's designed for Otago. Because mm-hmm. I was reading these things and thinking, you can't be planting that in Otago mm. this time, and it tells you week by week what to do. But that becomes its flaw because it tells you week by week what to do. None of them are really good at telling me about the design. Yeah, so that's and where the building uh, of the soil. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's not necessarily that week by week, but it is working to your context, to your situation, and your time is just, running. No, just grow. giving our best our best tips on garden design, on healthy soils, how to start, propagation techniques, productive planting, weeding, watering, specific vegetables information, crop rotation. Uh, plant health, compost, going microgreen, seed saving, and fermentation at the end. So it's just breaking it. We we really was insp- were inspired by our workshops where our aim is to uh, um, give people um, all the, the important information, essential information, what it takes to have a really thriving garden. And we find that a lot of beginner gardeners then have a chance to start with less mistakes and, and very experienced gardeners can find a few gaps in what we're doing that can really up their game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's really been based on and a lot of events we've had here on the farm and a lot of people's questions. And then in the book, we can just go into so much detail and incorporate so much research. And we love taking a lot of like where there's a lot of information to give and to find um a very approachable way to explain it so that's kind of mm. what we like doing is making information that might be a little bit overwhelming otherwise mm. really really accessible and and i think that's and, part of why the book did so well and i can buy that book from your webpage yes definitely or from yeah. all um all bookshops in most if not all bookshops in new zealand yeah. will sell it. Uh, as well as libraries definitely in otago you'd be able to to find it as well uh, but i and, imagine and you get more money if we buy it direct from you, it, you? Absolutely. It, it does help yes, us anywhere you source it is awesome yeah. and tell and, me your ferment book yes so the abundant kitchen I'm, I'm showing it to you but of course this is audio so uh, the abundant kitchen is um is 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 a mess it's massive actually it's, it's actually bigger than the gardening book uh, because it covers a lot of different practices so it's got uh, lacto fermentation and pickles kombucha jan and ginger beer mead making so we make our own alcohol it's good fun and um, vinegar sourdough um koji and miso which yeah uh, maybe a lot of people are not familiar with but it's a, a cool thing if you are already fermenting an experience and you want to try something completely new that chapter mm. is definitely for you and then you know just stocking up the pantry with preserves and and condiments uh, curing meat and and drying and um again a very very comprehensive book um so whether you're just starting out and you want to you know find one or two of these practices and build your your skill around them or whether you're already doing fermentation and you want to try something new a big focus for us was using local ingredients and as much as we could you know things we can grow in the garden um 
So while we're using these practices that are from all over the world, it is very suitable for people in New Zealand specifically. Mm. Um, anything else you want to add? That's awesome. We had so much fun working on this book and um, yeah, taken longer to make sure that it's all bang on. And we've grown a lot, almost all of the food you see in, in that book, uh, we've grown here on the farm. So we've taken the challenge uh, to grow as much as we could for it. And, um, and yeah, it was an amazing experience. And, and, and the team at Ellen and Anwin was yeah, also amazing. amazing. And Aaron McLean, um, who did the photography, is amazing. And we like to say that fermentation is like gardening in the kitchen. So yes. it's, again, a lot about creating those habitats and inviting the microorganisms to mm. work with you to create mm. these things. So you take your produce from the garden, from one living system, and you put it into another living system. And it's really... For us, it's it really felt like those two books. You know, they this is a completely follow up. Yeah, yeah. Because we often yeah. will also have excess produce from our gardens, whether we deliberately grow something for preserving or fermenting later, or we just have an abundance of something. So how do we capture it? So in the book, we've got all the different methods of how we do that, and basically how we eat, or in some ways, how, uh, yeah, for things that are here in the kitchen. Uh, and what we eat. So while we also have busy lives, we find the time to occasionally make a big batch of something. And then as we have several different types of things, we can easily put them out on the table to make a quick, really nourishing meal. So mm -hmm. we'll often, yeah, just, just open a couple of jars with a bit of, of rice cooked with broth. And that's, that's an amazing meal with some salad on the side. And, and, and since I started fermenting food and making broths my health has changed dramatically mm. um it's amazing particularly bone broth um mm. and just making lovely soups that are properly made with a proper broth rather than just a cube from the supermarket made a big difference to me Ooh, and we yep. have a bone broth recipe in the book for, one, for a lot of uh, research about this never taken many months and many days of just looking at not just what common practices and what other people recommend but actually looking at the science the scientific yes. research about what is the best ratio and what is a myth and what is not and so yes. both chapter was specifically interesting about that mm. now tell me about your workshops um, so yeah, since 2016, uh, based on our gardening experience and also workshops we've taught before in other places, um, we we teach a variety of home gardening workshops, market gardening workshops. So for people who want to make an income from selling vegetables, or, or maybe people who are managing a market in a community garden, garden or going on a larger scale, sort of. Totally, because um, we use our gardens are are really like a big, a very big home garden or a very small mm -hmm. farm. So we're in that intersection that most of our techniques are really suitable for home gardening. Uh, we also do fermentation workshops. Um, so really exciting. We've taken the opportunity that this book came out to relaunch our fermentation workshops and have a workshop that's specifically for beginners and specifically for advanced fermenters. We've got a few events um, in Auckland and in Christchurch. We'll be in Christchurch. In oh, Italy, you go on the Italy. road. You yeah, go on the road to do them. Exactly. Yeah, and, yeah, and hopefully we'll be in Australia next year. And um, yeah, and we also teach online. So we've got our home gardening, market gardening, and fermentation workshops online. So we really try and make our information accessible. So our books are an amazing opportunity and a low-cost one. Uh, and a special experience on our farm with workshops is another um, 
online workshops so you don't have to travel to get access to the information and support from us we also launched this week um, our tours again so we are open back again for tours so people can book in to garden tours or consultations for our website so yeah, we're really trying... that can be on farm also or online yeah so we're yeah. just really trying to help people out wherever they are because we're really passionate about growing and fermenting and together making um, a culture that is uh, more resilient and more sustainable and uh, and the buzzword regenerative too <laughs> well I have to say and you I don't know how to word this appropriately these days, but you both are amazingly, I can see you, others can't. You look amazingly healthy and you're amazingly happy and joyful. So you're a, a testament to your garden, if you know what I mean. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. And that's pretty the approach we wanted to go for when we decided what to do. We wanted to live the change we're advocating for. Um, so mm. we that's why we wanted to live on the farm we wanted to grow vegetables we wanted to have an education center we wanted to say you can grow a lot of food on a small piece of land in in regenerative ways you know we, it was really important for us to be yeah to be living this and to be showing that this and it's not all perfect it's not a simple journey it's not a paved road <laughs> you know messy and uh, all of it but But it is on the in its essence um, a really good and exciting thing that that we'll genuinely think is 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 something worth sharing and being happy about and so if people go to your web page um, they can find those tours they can find those um, workshops, workshops tours, and find books, the books everything and, and, gonna... on the website. And, and people can also join our newsletter and find us on Facebook and Instagram okay. and TikTok um, and YouTube and And we're also having some really exciting uh, social media happening uh, over happened in the over the last month um I've I don't got know it you... again when I look at the word I can do it packer racker farm you can do all it one word p a k a r a k a farm all one word dot co dot in z and it's all there and you'll see um Neva and Yotam and you'll see what I'm saying that they just look a picture of rude good health and And what it is to live a good life uh, close to the soil and a soil that is a living soil um, providing all the nutrients and the life that you need and then fermenting food so that your little belly gets all the microorganisms that it needs. It's wonderful. Before we go, I would like to ask you about your glass houses. Awesome. Tell me about that. What do you use them for and how are they set up? So we only have passive um, tunnel houses. We don't have glass houses. Yeah. And we use them to grow our microgreens. Uh, in season, we grow uh, tomatoes and cucumbers. This year, we're trying watermelons in the tunnel house. We're quite excited to see how that goes. Uh, and seedlings. Mm-hmm. And this year we're also doing ginger for the second oh, year. We... And so our, our structures are not heated. So basically we get a forced free garden, mostly guaranteed for about four or five months of the year. But mm-hmm. uh, we use a lot of hoops and cloches. So if you would come to our garden in September, it's pretty much all covered in hoops and cloches because um, it's too cold to establish plants in the winter. Um, but um, in our tunnel houses, yeah, then in the winter we grow salad greens and spinach and coriander and beet. 
beats and all those other exciting stuff. And this year, um, this is now the eighth season that we're growing tomatoes in our tunnel house. Um, and we are using a lower and lean um, trellising system and hard pruning. And we use a lot of organic matter. And this year, for the first time, we've done a new experiment growing our tomatoes in wool. So we've used wool from our sheep, from our Rodney Wiltshire sheep um, that we've gathered for a few okay. years. Romney, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, and that we are, uh, yeah, last year we did, we we grew clover in between our tomatoes. The year before we've used wood chips. The year before we've used wood mat. Um, the year before we've just had a very heavy munch of compost. So this year it's wool. And what's exciting about this is that um, is actually how popular um, this notion became or how shocking and strange it is. So we've just taken, maybe you can tell the story. You just took yes, a, I don't a, think it's that important. I think it's just a oh, great, I'm a great anecdote. Now you started me. Well, you have to tell me the anecdote. I just, so we, we've put down the wool in the tunnel house and because um, I run our social media, I just took a photo with my phone and I put it out on Facebook and uh, it's been seen by 10 million people and people no. over the world have been commenting. It's bigger on than it. Justin Bieber. <laughs> just the one post you know just that one post that people just went wild for and it was really interesting and i think it was um several things firstly it's just like you know and un very unusual to see uh tomatoes in wool but people have been sending us pictures from them for from their gardens where they have been using wools and um, have been doing it for years a lot of people talked about yeah feeling similar to us where they have sheep but there's nothing to do with the wool and sort of going Oh, finally, something I can do with it because it's it's just not worth selling anymore. Um, we have low, also low grade sheep. Every too. every kind of yeah. Well, it's not merino. So you just you, you, right? you have your tunnel house. It's a walk-in tunnel house, or a we yes. a walk-in yes. tunnel house. You have a raised garden or a garden on? The uh, no, in ground. So when we've made it, uh, when we designed our gardens, we've made a. a uh, a flat pad for a tunnel house, put, pushed all the topsoil to the other side, leveled the subsoil, then put the topsoil back on, spread it all around, and then kept adding compost and fertilizers over the years. Okay. And then when you come to use the wool, you lay the wool on top of that? Yes. Yeah. How thick? Um, so we have used... Um, let's say when we started, it was it was it was ten to fifteen centimeters thick. When we ended, it was between five to ten because we were stretching out our three full uh, bales <laughs> of wool. Um, but um, yeah, it, and it, what it does is it keeps the moisture really well in the ground. It's a slow release f um, fertilizer for yeah, both nitrogen and iron and other minerals. Phosphorus, uh, I think. I think so. Um, and then also, it's um, it's like weed suppression. And it reflects light. Um, it's comfy to walk on. It it does deter slugs and snails. So we've started using it around some of our other plantings, like our young courgette plants outside. Uh, we saw good success with that. We think that it will probably not decompose for about two years. So by the time the tomato comes out, we will gather it again and either use it uh, on another crop in the tunnel house or use it outside with crops like strawberries, which will grow another big batch or this, take it this to winter. The orchard, um, yeah, I think we'll use it in the garden for a bit longer. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been cool. Uh, it has a bit of gorse. <laughs> and <a> bit... <laughs> do you, do you, um, you put the seed in the soil and the wall on top? So what we've done is we've transplanted into it. So we've okay. actually, uh, actually we've pl transplanted and then put the wool around the plants. Got it. Um, yeah. 
and the there's pubs a video, as well. If you want to see, there's a but video on our Instagram. Page. I think we've got the fourth uh, update already. Oh, you're, you're so social media savvy. Oh, my goodness. Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> you, are you on Twitter? No. Uh, no, but we started on TikTok. You started last night. Ah, TikTok. <laughs> um, when you're bringing in Dalton's putting mm. say, or bringing in fertilizer, let's say, and this is advice for a home thing, not necessarily what you're doing, but for generally, do you have to be careful its origins? Always, yes. I mean, we really advocate for using organic certified amendments because they go for another level of scrutiny to make sure that they're yes. good. The other is to make sure that the amendments you're putting in um, are actually designed to go in a vegetable garden because a lot of times it's not and it's not balanced. Uh, always best to test with a small batch um, and like or put a small amount, see how plants react to it because some compost, for example, are actually weed killers um, and, and they create such a big imbalance. We also advocate for using amendments uh, as per the name, it's just amending the soil. It's not replacing or growing media. So we don't put, um, we try and put our amendments in small amounts and do it often. So a few times a year, rather than put a huge bulk amount, which then can okay. overwhelm the soil and the microorganisms and pick things off balance. So we try and put one or two centimeters layer of compost most of the time and a small sprinkle of fertilizer and just do that three, two, three, four times a year and every year. And then that slow um, use of amendments really improves things. Got it. And would you have a concern, say, oh, I don't know, I'm picking an example here, um, you might go to the local hen house and they've got a lot of manure or a sheep farm mm. and they've got manure or a horse paddock mm. and they've been madly spraying Roundup or whatever. Is that a worry? Yes, I would say that one of the advantages of getting things locally is that you can talk to the farmers. So, for example, yes. uh, if the horses have been drenched in the last few weeks, maybe it's worth not taking the manure. If it's been a month after, that's safer. Uh, there are specific research and, and more accurate numbers than this. But I would say that most grazing systems are not heavily based on spraying things. Yes. Most, um, And so it's just worth researching. Uh, I mean... Animal products are an amazing uh, way to integrate into the garden, but always better to play it safe. If you're not sure, use it for the orchard, which the, the roots of the plants are a lot more robust. Always yeah. better to compost it because for the composting system, it gets more balanced and and, and most toxins yes. break down uh, and become a lot more available. I see. I see. So yeah. if you're composting, that's a good safeguard. And okay. your, your fish from the sea, of course, is perfect. It is. It is. I mean, exciting, uh, yeah. yeah, we also, um, yeah, one of the tips, a low cost tip to increase the nutrient levels in your soil is to go and gather clean seawater and dilute that one to 200 and, and um, put that in your soil, which will then help bring the nutrients up without uh, bringing the salts up too much. And also mm. I'll plug uh, AgriSea, which is a company that we get seaweed products from and we know that they you know, gather the seaweed in the most sustainable way and um, and they make really great products as well. Mm. There you go. There. Well, thank you for your time. Um, you have been inspirational. Your webpage is wonderful. Your books look fantastic. Um, you're a great advertisement uh, for your farm. Uh, thank you for sharing your morning with us because uh, you've got a lot on. 
You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I've been talking to a wonderful couple, uh, Neva and Yotam Kay, and they're at Pakaraka Farm, practicing permaculture, regenerative farming. You can go to their webpage, which is Pakaraka Farm. I'm going to spell it one last time, P-A-K-A-R-A-K-A Farm, all one word, .co.nz. Please go there because you'll love reading about them. You'll love reading about the farm and the permaculture. And if you have an interest, I'm sure you'd like the book, uh, the two books. Um, wonderful, wonderful couple. Isn't it amazing in New Zealand uh, and indeed around the world what people are doing, what people are getting up to? And I guess in many ways we're rediscovering what we once always used to know. And um, we're having to use science to get to it rather than just do it like we've done for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thank you for listening. Remember, drop me a text 2057. Email me inbox at Rally Check Radio. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. And it's Politics Explained with Tane Webster. It's like, um, what was that movie where you start the day all over again? Each week it's, um, we've been here before, right? No deal yet. Yeah, yeah. So I think I had a well, bet that there wouldn't be a deal. Yeah, but there has been progress. Oh, there's been pro- – oh, forgive me. I forgot. There had been progress. They had talked about a deal. And, and now they- they're, also talking about, they're also talking about who should be the Deputy Prime Minister. So that's, also, that's what we're going to discuss today. That's what's upset me. I am a little upset with Mr Seymour. Why? Well, obviously I'm upset with him because he agreed – with the lockdowns and shutting businesses through COVID. And then he agreed with the mandates. And then, of course, he refused, along with everyone else, to meet with the protesters. So all of that was a big, thick black mark. But this Deputy Prime Minister thing has upset me also because I can only hope and pray that he's just saying this as sort of part of winning some great policy concession. Because the only thing that would matter, the only being Deputy Prime Minister would only matter to David Seymour and his immediate family. It doesn't absolutely matter to the ACT Party or to its voters and potential voters or to its supporters or to its members. And in fact, it's a huge negative. How's it negative? Well, think of what, in politics, you never want to be the deputy because it's a useless role. So you never also want to be the deputy prime minister when you're leading another party. So just carefully reflect on what the deputy prime minister's role is. The deputy prime minister's role is simply to stand in for the prime minister when they can't make it. So they mightn't make a cabinet meeting, and so you chair it. They mightn't be able to make a function, so you turn up on their behalf 
or the prime minister might be overseas and you're the acting prime minister for that time. Now, that sounds very exciting. And I imagine I would love it personally because you're the deputy prime minister. And now, today, for three days, you're the acting prime minister. Oh, my goodness, how exciting is that? I'm the acting prime minister of New Zealand. But the problem is this. Because you're the deputy prime minister, you can only act as if you were Mr. Luxon. So you can't act as David Seymour. You actually have to be following a consistent line and you have to be run by Christopher Luxon's office because you can't have the prime minister saying one thing one day and something else the next. So the deputy prime minister can only say what the prime minister would say given that precise circumstance. Does that make sense? Mm. And normally you have the deputy prime minister as a person of your own party, and they can do that because you're on the same team. Yeah. How on earth you can be deputy prime minister if you're the leader of the ACT Party? Because there are so many, and indeed this is why this talk has taken so long, these negotiations supposedly, there are so many differences between ACT and National between David Seymour and Chris Luxon, between David Seymour, Chris Luxon, and Mr. Winston Peters. So if David Seymour accepts the job of Deputy Prime Minister, he's effectively becomes a member of the National Party. He can't speak out. I mean, he can, because he's the leader of the ACT Party, but he's got to be explaining all the time, oh, here I have the hat on as acting prime minister, leader of the country, on behalf of a national prime minister. Now, hang on, Mr. Luxon's back, so I'll just take that hat off and let me put on my ACT hat. doesn't really work. So it doesn't give ACT any power any extra prestige, any position of influence, you're just the man. I mean, maybe, maybe in stuff. some people's eyes, it's. I'm not saying this is what they were thinking, but maybe, maybe they think that it it adds some clout to have that title, and then therefore, what he says may have more weight in some circles, possibly you know internationally, where people are not quite aware of the differences in or how the roles work in New Zealand, you know. Maybe there's some element That's of that. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But he can only say that when he's saying what Mr. Luxon would say. If you see my point, take COVID, for example. Let's imagine that um, Mr. Luxon doesn't want an inquiry. Well, the Deputy Prime Minister has to support that position. And if Mr. Luxon's overseas, the Deputy Prime Minister can't announce an inquiry or go and give a speech about we're doing an inquiry because that's not the role of a deputy. Mm. Now, let's say he wants a COVID inquiry as the leader of the ACT Party. Well, it becomes fought because it's this two-hat scenario. Mr. Winston Peters 
has been Deputy Prime Minister as leader of New Zealand First. Now, he, it's, he can, funnily enough, ride about 23 horses at once. He'd be fantastic in a circus, if you know what I mean. And so he could get away with it. But to me, it's sad because it's such a personal thing rather than a policy thing. I want the ACT Party to be achieving its policies, what its members over the years have campaigned for and worked towards, what they voted for, not for a personal position for a particular MP, particularly the leader. It's not what the ACT Party is about. And being Deputy Prime Minister doesn't advance the ACT cause and actually hinders it and the only thing that could be doing it could be an extremely clever thing where you say oh <laughs> yeah we've negotiated to this and you say to the media oh and I'd quite like to be deputy prime minister and then you go to Mr Luxon and he says no you can't be and you say well you're going to have to give me something more so it right. could be a negotiating ploy that I would love and accept but if Mr. Seymour emerges from these coalition talks as a deputy prime minister, I will think, one, he could have achieved a lot more policy wins and not taken that role. And B, over the next three years, he's put his saddle on the National Party horse, not the ACT Party horse. And that's not a position I'd want him to see. Indeed, you'll recall that I started out saying that he shouldn't even take a ministerial post, given that New Zealand First is in there. He should sit on the crossbenches and wield enormous power. To go yeah. to inter-cabinet means that you become as one with government. To be Deputy Prime Minister, you're the understudy doing what Mr Luxon decides. You're yeah, the my other question was... If he is the deputy prime minister, does that mean he would have to, even when he's not in the, in the, uh, when he's not acting in that role, even when he's you know got the act hat on, would that mean he has to moderate his any criticism of what National's doing Absolutely. more so than yeah okay? I mean, if if he criticised what the prime minister is doing, he would be fired. Because you can't be deputy. the deputy. You can't yeah. be the deputy, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's absurd to be the deputy and not support the leader. That's the whole point of being the deputy. By the way, can you recall who was deputy prime minister previously? I can't. <laughs> Yeah, it was, enough, some, it was someone in Labour. It was someone in Labour. Oh, was, it was someone it? in Labour. Yeah, they had a hat closed Mazir. They won all the posts. So, of course, they did. But you can't remember them. I can't remember. Was it Carmel Cipollone? It was someone odd. Yeah. Uh... And everyone thought it was Grant Robertson, and I don't think it was. Um, but doesn't that tell you something? Yeah, that you just people don't care, eh? Well, they haven't, you, you know, who was John Key's deputy? Was it Bill English? No. Yeah. Oh, woo! 
who was who was Jacinda's deputy in 2017? Again, well, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Are you busy googling it? Yeah, I have to. <laughs> it was Winston, was it? No, no. Uh, yeah, from 2017 to 2020s. It was Winston Peters? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's what. Isn't that funny? I did not know that. But the point is that it's something that people don't really take that much notice of. And 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 you've taken a, a position that denies you the opportunity to be noticed because to the extent that you're noticed, you're not doing the job. You know, your job is just to be the fill-in guy, you know, you're the sort of substitute. You're the extra that comes on when the main guy is injured or having a spell. Yeah, um, I think the main the main aspect that is concerning, or I would guess, among listeners and and the like, is the the fact that it means if it was to be the case, he would be less able to criticise national because part of what they campaign on is to you know help national you know push them to go a bit further mm. right to be a bit more mm. and because mm. national's trying to moderate be more moderate and and act trying to go a bit further so if if it means he he can't uh be as critical then that's unfortunate when i was a minister and leader of the act party i took a position which was called a minister outside cabinet which meant a lot less pay and less perks i think I can't recall. But what it meant was I didn't have to go to every cabinet meeting and I didn't attend every cabinet decision. And that was my purpose. I only went along to cabinet for things that affected my portfolio. So there might be several weeks where I didn't attend cabinet. So I was what's called a minister outside cabinet. And that suited me as leader of the ACT Party perfectly. Mm. Because what would happen is, for example, when John Key had Peter Sharples in secret go off and sign up to the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, I could walk into Parliament and let rip into the Prime Minister because I had no way been part of any cabinet decision on that. And so I put into our coalition agreement that, that we could agree to disagree. If I'd sat in cabinet, I couldn't influence because I was just one voice and the cabinet is like, you know, collective responsibility. It doesn't have a vote. Yeah. But it decides things and you're just, well, you're just Rodney. Right? You, you just go with it. You, have to you go don't with get it. a say with this. But if you've been in the meeting, you can't criticize it. So I made really certain that I didn't get caught overstaying in a cabinet meeting on matters that I would disagree with, that I couldn't influence. Yeah, I'd go running out of the room because if I disagreed with them, 
I would be in breach of the cabinet manual and potentially be fired, be up to the prime minister. But you can understand it also. You can't have someone in the room where the decision gets discussed and decided and then walk out of the room and say that was the wrong decision endlessly. It, it's yeah. it's not stable. And so I was very careful to keep my distance that, yes, we had a national-led government. Yes, uh, the ACT Party was supporting uh, that government. But no, we didn't agree with all the decisions. And we could agree to disagree. We had that clause in our coalition document. And we often did. And it was important that we did because we were a separate party. We never went along with the treaty settlements. We never went along with making a river um, a human being or a Maori spirit and giving it a, its own sort of e legal entity. Um, we never agreed with the UN Declaration of Individual Rights or whatever it was called. We never agreed with the Independent Maori Statutory Board. Um, even though that was done in my portfolio, I actually voted against it in Parliament. Um, so we have that distance. But if the ACT Party becomes full cabinet ministers and deputy prime minister, the moment they step outside, the coalition looks shaky because there's a split in the government. Um, it's a very subtle point. But it's a very important one. It's good for the for the voters, you know. I mean, because the voters, they don't know all the intricacies of all these rules, and no, so they don't. if they don't, when they see you just going along with stuff, it makes them say, "Oh, why aren't you standing up for me?" Because I I wanted you to do these things, and and like by doing what you did, uh, and what could be done in this situation, but by doing what you did, it meant that you could stay much more true to your voters vocally, and which would yes. keep them pretty happy. Yes, and also maintain your principles, your political yeah, principles. Yeah, integrity. Because you, if you want to support a national government 100%, then join the party. Yeah. But the people that voted for ACT aren't voting for national, they're voting for ACT. So there needs to be, yes, we can support the national party, but we actually have our differences. This, is, this looks to me now like a very important aspect of what's been agreed because are they just going to be all one and hold hands and sing kumbaya and of course if we think about it we tend to want our politicians not to argue and to disagree we look at them and we say oh why can't they just all get along you know and just do what's in the best interest of the country that's the last thing you want. You actually want your politicians disagreeing and squabbling because when they're disagreeing and squabbling, they're winkling out the flaws and the mistakes in policy and the direction of the country. What was terrible about the COVID deal yeah. wasn't just that it was done, but that the opposition agreed agreed with it they should never have agreed with it why because they're the opposition and they should have said oh look we agree with 99.99 percent of this but i have concerns 
That's all they needed to do. So and easy. Because I have these concerns, I'm not voting for this. Now, if they had said that, no one would have held it against them because they could make a minimal concern. Yeah. But then, as the facts became apparent, yeah. say, oh, my concerns were justified. Oh, look at all these protesters. Wow, I'd better go down and talk to them because I too had concerns. Yeah. But when they had agreed with the government, they ended up like the government, head in sand like a bunch of ostriches. And now they can't admit that there are excess deaths. Now they can't admit that there are vaccine injuries because they agreed with the government. All they needed to do was to make a bit of space. And the only time that the opposition agrees with the government is when they're voting for their perks or they're in a conspiracy, same thing, I guess, against the people of New Zealand. It's very rare that there's a piece of legislation or a policy that's perfect. And you always want the opposition able to pick it to part. But if they support it, it means going back on the original decision. And that's why those national and the ACT parties are so heavily compromised over COVID. And that's why New Zealand First and Winston aren't. Because they never agreed with it. How easy would it have been for National and ACT to say, look, we do need strong, this is a terrible disease, yada, 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 played to the crowd, but we have concerns about this legislation. You could actually say we think it's a bit draconian, or you could even say it doesn't go far enough. But just don't vote for it and leave yourself wiggle room to criticise it when the problems become apparent. Yeah, I think yeah. there were individuals that did a little bit of that. Uh, Simon O'Connor, I believe, yes. was one. Yes. He's gone now. He's gone. That tells you something too, right? Because I think if the National Party had backed him, he'd still be there. Yeah. I love to see. I love politicians squabbling. It's that squabbling. And by the way, it's reassuring. If they all agree on something, I think I'm pretty sure there's a quote out here, a quote out there on this. But when all the politicians or most of them agree on something, that's when you need to be really concerned. Absolutely worried. Absolutely beside yourself. And of course, um, I was told when I started out as an MP that our parliament was like a pressure release valve for public discontent. And I came to very much appreciate that, particularly with MMP, because you had a lot of, you know, wild and wonderful MPs, you know, your Sue Bradfords and your Nandor Tanchosses. And Sue Bradford was a very interesting MP because she would be out there with a protest and a placard hitherto before being an MP, waving it around, making sound bites for TV. When she got to Parliament, she actually couldn't sustain an argument. She wasn't very convincing. There's a big difference between a sound bite and waving a placard and making a case. But her supporters could hear her talk. 
they didn't need to be protesting. She was in Parliament. And while you're talking and debating, it takes the pressure off that bit of society. So I think it's a wonderful release mechanism. And if we'd had our opposition party oppose the government over all the COVID rules, those of us who are against what happened would have had a release valve. It's kind of good that they didn't in that sense. Well, it's good in the sense that we wouldn't have the strong community that we have now. Yeah, we were forced to do what we did. Yeah, it was us against everyone, including our own government and opposition and parliament. And that's how I felt. It's the first time in my life that I haven't felt represented. I felt out in the cold. No one to no one to see, no one. And and like our, you couldn't even write a letter to the paper, you know, because you know it wouldn't be published. Well, there we have it. So today, maybe Tane, they'll announce it. We'll keep our eyes peeled. Maybe. I'm not so sure they will. Do you want to make another prediction? Oh, I love going double or nothing. So they'll keep going for another week is your prediction. And My prediction is we'll have an election announced before Christmas. <laughs> I uh, doubt that. But be oh, funny. wow. That would be a good one. I'm serious. Listeners, send in your predictions. You know, we'd love to. We'd love to hear them. I think there's trouble. I think the fact that it's taken so long suggests trouble to me. And when you're doing a deal, it's not done until it's done. They're not saying, "Oh, we just have to have our boards ratify it." As of now, might have happened while we're talking or earlier this morning. Mm. But no, I think there's trouble. Maybe I'm um, I'm always a rogue in politics. I'm always the one that sort of tosses in a hand grenade, see what happens. But that would be my hand grenade. I don't think it's a happy ship. I think they're professional enough to just make it work, and they know they need to ASAP, but we'll see. We'll see. Okay, Tani, that was Politics Explained. Tell us your predictions for this government, this three-way Will we have a government while we're on here? Um, send us a text, 2057, email us, inbox at radleycheck.radio. Thank you, Tane. Thank you for listening, everyone. It's a fascinating time in politics. We're going to have a lot to talk about the next few weeks. And uh, <laughs> there's one thing that's for certain. All our predictions will be wrong. Talk soon. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive honest media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's that special time when I open the mailbag, see what we've got, and uh, here we go. Remember we were having that discussion about whether New Zealand was listed on the London Stock Exchange. Someone's come back and said, Rodney, the New Zealand government and many if not all councils is indeed listed on the Stock Exchange. I believe it is a US SEC as Her Majesty the Queen of England and right of New Zealand. Hmm. I wonder if that's for government bonds because the 
New Zealand government represents itself uh, not as the queen anymore, but as the king. And because the government is sovereign, and I suspect that's how they raise their debt. And so they issue government bonds a lot. And those bonds will be traded, and they'll be traded in the financial markets, and maybe that's what they go under as the king now um, in respect of New Zealand. I don't know. I'm guessing. Hi, Rodney. I always enjoy listening to Real Talk. You have great guests, fast, cover fascinating topics, and do it so well. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. This is from Anton. Although I was a little disappointed listening to Neville Munro last week. You recall, listeners, that was Neville Munro talking about the Scott Watson case. The Hope Smart murder case is an interesting one that seems to have several question marks over it. But we know Neville went off track accusing former Detective Inspector Rob Pope of essentially corruption, not only in that investigation, but also a subsequent investigation. I started to lose interest. Well, I'm sorry about that. Um, you did well to bring it back on topic, but the damage was done. I feel he lost credibility and he started to come across as a zealot with an extra grind. Never mind, keep up the good work. Regards, Anton. Thank you, Anton, and thank you for your comment. It is a problem for people, isn't it? That when they get passionate about a topic, um, they can come across as overly passionate to those that aren't as into it and somewhat unhinged. And I know that I can come across that way at times when I get passionate about a topic. And it doesn't mean you're wrong, though. If you know what I mean, it's a tricky one because I feel very strongly about the transgender issue, for example, and people think I'm totally unhinged over it. <laughs> Thank you so much for the interview with Neville Munro. It always puzzled me why the police chose to ignore the evidence of such an experienced seaman as Guy Wallace, but I had no idea of the enormity of the injustice committed. I hope you can use your influence to get this interview presented in a court of law. Keep up the good work. Regards, Colin. To Rodney Hyde, yes to the referendum, get it all out in the open with a list of all the risks of not doing so. Attached to working paper from Rob. Thank you, Rob. I read that paper with interest. Great comments on the treaty principles fiasco. Yep, I would like a say from Michael. Here we go on the 50 years of the DPB. Late 60s, I was at Wira Rapper College. Some girls were consciously choosing the benefit. Imagine. Deposit on a home and income to pay off the mortgage, Mary. I'm lucky I was born in 1963 and my birth mother did not have access to the DPB. I would have had a worse life if she was not parent material. Oh my goodness. So you were adopted out and you say fortunately. And I was not aborted as the family was Roman Catholic. Oh, so nice to have you along. Isn't that shocking when you think of what can happen and what now does happen? Men have had long been expendable, now children are commodities from Steve. The Link interview. Oh, yes, the CB radios. Great chat about CB radio. Had one when I was younger. I think it's definitely the way to go now. In the US, there's a new telecoms company for freedom-loving people. So that's an alternative too. So in the light of the public Juno fund being bankrupted, uh, blackmailed, beholden, over speaking up into the future. Didn't Chippy refer to something similar over his head? Hi, Rodney. A big shout out to Link for his knowledge and kindness, helping so many Kiwis understand how to keep in contact with others when things go pear-shaped. Link has travelled all around New Zealand, giving education lectures on handheld radios, etc. He is such a wonderful, caring guy who genuinely cares about our well-being. 
as you found out, he's a man with a lot of knowledge over a lot of subjects. A huge thank you, Link, from the many folk you have helped already. Thank you also to RCR for everything you're doing to make our days so entertained. We so lovely love listening to your show from Sal and Jack. Thank you, Sal and Jack. Uh, on Israel and Gaza, Rodney, I suggest you interview Mike. Michael Peled about Israel. He wrote a book called The General Son. He's an Israeli and brought up in Israel. Most interesting. Yes, I Googled him. I got your note early and I Googled him. Very, very interesting guy. I don't think I can get him on the show. He's in the US and um, busy. But I'm still looking for someone local to come on and speak to us. Um, particularly from the other side, from the Palestinian side in this conflict. Thank you, everyone. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. Or email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love I love your responses. I love building up a community. I love reading them out. Thank you so much for listening and for sending me a note. You're on Rally Check Radio. Uh, we'll talk with Rodney Hyde. What a great show we've had. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing me into your home, into your car, into your place of work, wherever you listen. I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh my goodness, Wendy Fowler and I did we had it off. Oh. And isn't it interesting that she looks at it and the little kids and she cries and I look at it and I just get angry in a sort of aggressive way. I can't can't believe the response. But children are so beautiful, so innocent, so wonderful. And the idea that our government is doing this to them just makes me so angry. And so it was nice to jump across to Yotam and Neva and to think about having your hands in living soil and working it over and over and over and making it so productive you can get eight crops a year and produce 8 to 10 tons on that little wee plot. It's amazing. And they were a wonderful couple. So alive, so healthy, so happy. And that's real. Feeding people. That was a nice reminder. Thank you for being with us this Thursday morning. Talk next week. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me inbox at radio. Until next week. We'll talk then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.